not going to, you know, sully these proceedings by saying I'm sorry. That doesn't cut it. This should never have happened. And uh, I will say to Mr. Broadwater that I assure him uh, that it will never happen again. That we will never let junk science into a courtroom in this county. I think as Mr. Fitzpatrick has pointed out, Mr. Broadwater cannot get those 16 years back. But based upon my review of the motions and the representations of counsel, this court grants defendant's motion. <laughs> they take his conviction and the indictment is hereby dismissed. Thank you, Judge. That concludes the decision. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Judge. I couldn't help but cry. The relief that a district attorney of that magnitude would, would, would side with me concerning this case is it, it's, it's, it's so profound. I did everything I could do to always show people that, hey, I'm never that type of guy. I never could be that type of guy. A lot of doors been slammed in my face for jobs. She wanted children. I wouldn't bring children to the world because of this. And now we're past the age we can't have children. Ruined his life. His life has been ruined over this, you know, not just incarceration, but wrongfully being labeled a sex offender. These are things that he will never get back. An astonishingly simple case of injustice. One question during trial. Do you remember seeing the accuser in court? Yes. Um, they, she got on the stand. And I remember the question was asked, do you see the perpetrator in the room that did this crime to you? And she said, yes, that black man right there. And I looked around and I said, I'm the only black man mm -hmm. in the courtroom. Yeah. Matter of fact, I'm the only black person in the whole courtroom. And I told Steve Parkett to object to it. I said, you gotta do something. This, what's going on in this courtroom? You know, you know this, this. This is not right. And um, I didn't know that my fate was sealed. Context of white supremacy: the fate of the black male sealed before we even get to the verdict context of white supremacy uh today's date thursday december 23rd 2021 so i have been told that this is gus t renegade the black oj simpson uh in for another broadcast this is our weekly book club incidentally before we get started i just mentioned oj simpson we started this year reading O.J. Simpson, old lion Jeffrey Tubin. Remember that way back at the beginning of 2021. Anthony Broadwater paid $1,000 in an attempt to get Johnny Cochran to work his case to clear his name. Johnny Cochran, apparently the late great Johnny Cochran, refunded Mr. Broadwater's money because he said he didn't work appeals. Uh, but apparently this happened uh, after Mr. Broadwater was released. Full circle. Anywho, uh, this is our second 
study session on Alice Siebold, suspected white supremacist, her 1999 memoir, Lucky. Lots of virgin, uh, the term virgin in the book or some derivative 46 times. Uh, the audio segments that we began with, number one, that was from the trial where Mr. Broadwater's wrongful conviction was vacated. Uh, interestingly, uh, we heard District Attorney William Fitzpatrick. That was him at the very beginning where he said, we're not going to sully these proceedings and apologize. And we can just promise Mr. Broadwater that this sort of thing will never happen again. I have no idea how any individual classified as white or non-white in the known universe could truthfully promise we will never have another black person wrongfully convicted for rape or any other crime in any jurisdiction. I have no idea how someone can guarantee that, especially it happens all the time. We just had someone today who uh, shared a link for uh, Devonia Inman, D-E-V-O-N-I-A, Devonia Inman, black male who in Georgia served 23 years in greater confinement before they found out, whoops, just like Anthony Broadwater, you did not commit this crime. He spent 23 years in confinement for murder and was just released this week. I have no idea how anyone can promise that we will make sure this doesn't happen again. Anyway, also in that segment, we heard Mr. Broadwater saying that his wife wanted to have children, you know, let's let's re, re, uh, reproduce, right? Biological imperative. And he said, no way. There's no way I can bring a child into this. We also heard that was Mr. Broadwater at the end where he said, uh, Alice Siebold, she's on the witness stand. And they said, do you see your attacker? And she says, oh, yeah, black male. Now, apparently she didn't say Negro uh, when she was on the witness stand black male right there and he says wait a minute I'm the only black person in this courtroom wait a minute you all gotta object or do something uh, incidentally before I move forward I do want to make sure a retired firefighter last week he pointed out she refers to Anthony Broadwater she says Negro male and it's as though she's reading from her written statement uh, to the police about this alleged rape that took place way back in 1981 this book, this memoir was published in 1999. Certainly by 1999, you were not hearing white people or pretty much anybody as retired firefighters said in a like professional capacity coming out and referring to a black person as a Negro. They could have even cleaned it up, right? They could have inserted black in that portion and no one would have known the difference. Big whoop. They didn't even do that. Just left it for, I guess, authenticity sake. I don't know. But that is, you know, at least something to just file that one away. Negro male rapist. Anyway, I just wanted to make sure that I included. Uh, incidentally, Anthony Broadwater was in the Marines. Veteran. Talked about that a few times this year as, uh, this year as well. Geronimo Pratt. Uh, also, two quick reports I'll share and then we'll go ahead and get to the book the first report this is from University of Michigan they have a whole website dedicated to wrongful convictions and they have a page for Mr. Broadwater I'm just reading one paragraph it reads 
While Broadwater was spending his last year in prison, Siebold was at the University of California, Irvine, completing a Master's of Fine Arts degree that included a course on memoir writing. Eight months after Broadwater was released, 16 years in confinement, on August 4, 1999, Siebold launched her literary career with a memoir, Lucky, that detailed the attack and identified Broadwater as Gregory Madison. Siebold went on to write The Lovely Bones, which sold more than 5 million copies and was made into a feature film. I stopped there. Incidentally, The Lovely Bones did so well that Lucky, the book we're reading, ended up becoming a major seller after, you know, people said, oh my gosh, he's written so well about the uh, abduction and murder of little white girls. We'll have to read more of her work. The next report, this is from uh, the Syracuse University newsletter. Incidentally, I do want to say, I guess I get to do a little personal brag. Uh, Gus T was accepted at the University of Michigan. I just read from their website. I was also accepted at Syracuse University, even though I'm a University of Virginia alumnus. Wahoo wah. Uh, I have been on the campus of Syracuse. Got to see where Jim Brown's jersey is and all the rest. Carmelo Anthony and all their achievements. Let me even make sure I include. Now, obviously, I was not at the University of Syracuse or Syracuse University. I was not there uh, in 1981 at the time that all this happened. It was some years later. That notwithstanding, Syracuse University is private unless I am misinformed. It is not in New York City. What they call upstate New York is where it is. It does not exactly look like a ghetto campus. And when I say that, I mean it does not strike you as a slum or a place where you would be snatched and sodomized and gang raped. Not saying that crime doesn't happen in lots of different places and all that, but I mean generally it looks like a rather safe campus. I've been on some campuses that look dangerous. Syracuse University did not strike me that way. Maybe, you know, they came a long way and cleaned things up from 19, the early 80s by the time I got there. That notwithstanding, Syracuse University, they have a report on all of this. It re or it's titled 40 year old Syracuse rape conviction at the heart of author Alice Siebold's memoir is thrown out it's from just a few days back. I'm just reading the last little tidbit of the report. It reads in an interview, Broadwater described how after prison, he has had a life of odd jobs and manual labor, his prospects limited by his rape conviction. He had to register as a sex offender and everything. Eventually, Broadwater said he earned chances at factories like Syracuse, China, and volunteered to work night shifts. Incidentally, uh, they have reports about how working night shifts is very bad for your health, throws off your circadian rhythms, uh, where you might end up having difficulty having sleep. Uh, and can cause long-term health problems if you continue working the night shift or have irregular work shifts like that. It continues, after all, he said police couldn't implicate him in another late-night attack if he could show he was at work. I always wanted a night job to protect myself, Broadwater said. 
To this day, Broadwater does some trash hauling with a truck he bought. He also repurposes old metal furniture into large meat smokers. I'm still struggling. Today, I'm still struggling, Broadwater said. As I stated, this was published days ago. Not months, not years. This month still struggling and he always wanted a night job to protect himself that is one of the most disgraceful indictments of black male privilege really the system of white supremacy that I've ever heard I've never in my life heard someone say that I want a really poor paying because I've never heard anyone say that, you know, getting the graveyard shift, as they call it, is the route to career uh, success. I've never heard that to say that I need a job on the graveyard shift to make sure I don't get falsely accused of raping a white woman. Now, shout to intersectionality on that one. Alice Siebold, Lucky, audio segment one. In high school, I began as a geek. A geek because I played the alto saxophone and, as was required of almost every musician, save the lucky violinist, if you played, you marched. I was in jazz band, where, as second alto, I jammed on such tunes as the funky chicken and raindrops keep falling on my head. But getting down with my bad self was not enough recompense to be labeled a band geek. So, after marching in a Philadelphia Eagles halftime show, where our band formed the shape of the Liberty Bell on the field, as an indication of my marching skills, I was asked to be part of the crack. I quit band. Later, without me, the band won a state championship for marching. The feelings of joy over my absence were mutual. I went from music to art. Ours was a crafts-oriented art department, and I loved the raw materials. There was silver, hunks of it, and if you were good enough, gold. I made jewelry and cut silk screens and fired enamel. Once, with Mrs. Sutton, half of the husband and wife team who ran the department, I spent a whole afternoon pouring molten pewter into coffee cans of cold water. Wow, the shapes. I loved the Suttons. They approved all my projects, no matter how impossible to complete. I made a long-haired Medusa silkscreen and an enamel choker of two hands holding a bouquet of flowers. I worked swiftly to finish a set of bells for a present for my mother. They featured the head of a lady with two arms forming a frame. Inside the frame were two bells with blue heart nipples as the clappers. The bells made a fine sound. I followed in the wake, academically, of my perfect sister. She was quiet, neat, and got straight A's. I was loud, weird, and obsolete. I dressed like Janis Joplin ten years after her death, and I defied anyone to make me study or care. I still got by. Teachers, individuals, touched me. The Suttons and a few English teachers combined to make me care just enough, if you didn't point it out to me, not to become a druggie or a pothead or spend the free periods outside in the smoking lounge 
hiding doobies in my boots. But I could never be a druggie because I had a secret. More than anything, I finally decided I wanted to be an actress. And not just any actress, but a Broadway one. A loud Broadway one. Ethel Merman, to be exact. I loved her. I think I loved her even more because my mother said she couldn't sing and couldn't act, but that her force of personality was so strong that she took the attention away from everyone else on stage. I wore an old feather boa and a sequin jacket that Father Bruniger held back for me from a church clothes drive. What I sang, as loudly and as charismatically, I hoped, as my idol, was her signature song. Traipsing up and down our spiral stairs with the Bassets as my audience, I belted out, There's no business like show business. It made my mother and sister laugh, and my father loved it more than anyone. I couldn't sing either, but I would cultivate what Merman had, or try, force of personality. Bassets at my feet, a little extra weight, seven years of braces and rubber bands, there seemed no better time to break into song. My obsession with Broadway and bad singing led me to friendships with gay boys in school. We sat outside Friendly's Ice Cream Shop on Route 30 and sang the soundtrack from Bette Midler's The Rose. Gary Freed and Sally Shaw, voted the cutest couple in our school, walked by on their way to Gary's 65 Mustang after a Saturday night Sunday. They laughed at us in our black clothes and the silver jewelry we made for cheap in art class. Sid, Randy, and Mike were gay. We were infatuated with people like Merman, Truman Capote, Odetta, Bette Midler, and the producer, Alan Carr, who appeared on Merv in large, brightly colored moo-moos, and who made Merv laugh in a way that other guests didn't. We wanted to be stars, because as stars, you could get out. We hung outside Friendly's because there was nowhere to go. We all rushed home to watch Merv if we knew Capote or Carr would be on. We studied Liberace. Once he flew in on a guy wire over his piano and candelabra with his cape spread out. My father loved him, but my friend Sid didn't. He's making an idiot out of himself, and he's really talented, he said, as we smoked cigarettes outside Friendly's near the dumpsters. Sid was going to drop out of school and move to Atlantic City. He knew a hairdresser there who, over the summer, had promised to help him out. Randy was sent to military school by his parents after an incident in the park. We weren't allowed to talk to him anymore. Mike fell in love with a football player and got beat up. I'm going to live in New York when I grow up, I began to say. My mother loved the idea. She told me about the Algonquin Round Table and the people who sat there, how special they were. She had an outsider's mythology of New York and New Yorkers. She thrilled at the idea of me ending up there. The year I turned 15, my mother decided my birthday present would be a trip to New York. I think she worked herself up to go by pretending my excitement about it would keep her from collapse. On the Amtrak train up from Philadelphia, she began to have a version of her panic, the dreaded flap. It grew worse as we sped toward New York. I was so excited to be going, but as she rocked back and forth in her seat and her hands trembled, one on her right temple and one rubbing the space between her breasts, I decided we should go home. We'll come another time, Mom, I said. It's okay. She argued. 
but we're on our way. You want this so much. Then, let me try. She pushed herself. She fought to function normally. We should have turned back when we reached Penn Station. Both of us probably knew this. She was a mess. She couldn't walk upright. She had wanted to walk up from Penn Station to the Metropolitan Museum of Art on 82nd and 5th so we could see the shops and Central Park along the way. She had spent the weeks before planning it, told me that on 44th was the Algonquin and that I would get to see the Ritz and the Plaza where she was sure my idol, Merman, often stayed. Maybe we would take a ride in a handsome cab around Central Park and see the famous apartment building, the Dakota, Bergdorf's, and Lexington. The theater district, where Merman's musicals were playing. My mother wanted to stand in front of Sherman's statue and, as a daughter of the South, say a silent prayer. The duck pond, the carousel, the old men with their model sailboats. It was my mother's gift. But she couldn't walk. We stood in the cab line out on 7th Avenue and got in one. She could not sit up straight. She kept her head between her knees so she would not throw up. She said, I'm taking my daughter to the Met. You all right, lady? The cab driver asked. Yes, she said. She implored me to look out the window. This is New York, she said, as she stared at the dirty floor of the cab. I don't remember the drive up save for crying trying to do what she said. The buildings and people were a blur to me. I'm not going to make it, she began saying. I want to, Alice, but I'm not going to make it. The cab driver was relieved to reach the Met. At first, my mother stayed in the back seat. Mom, let's just turn around and go back, I pleaded. In or out, the cab driver said. What's the story? We got out. We crossed the street. In front of us were the monumental steps up to the entrance of the Met. I was trying to look around and take it in. I wanted to run up those steps, thronged with people, smiling and taking pictures. Slowly, with me leading my bent-over mother, we made it up some twenty stairs. I have to sit down, she said. I can't go in. We were so close. Mom, I said, we made it. We have to go in. You go in, she said. My fragile suburban mother sat in her good dress on the hot cement, rubbing her chest and trying not to throw up. I can't go in without you, I said. She opened her purse and took a twenty from her wallet. She shoved it in my hand. Run into the gift shop and buy yourself something, she said. I want you to have a souvenir of the trip. I left her there. I did not look back at her smallness on the steps. In the gift shop, I was overwhelmed, and $20 didn't buy much. I saw a book called Dada and the Art of Surrealism for $8.95. I rushed back out after paying for it. People had surrounded my mother and were trying to help. There was no pretending now. Can we help you in some way? A West German man and his concerned wife asked in perfect English. My mother ignored them. The Seabolts did everything themselves. Alice, she said, you need to flag a cab. I can't do it. Mom, I don't know how, I said. Go to the edge of the sidewalk and stick your hand out, she said. One will stop. I left her and did as I was told. An old bald man in a yellow checker cab pulled up. 
I explained that my mother was the one on the steps. I pointed to her. Could you help? What's wrong with her? She's sick? I don't want sick people in my cab, he said, with a heavy Yiddish accent. She's just nervous, I said. She won't throw up. I can't move her by myself. He helped me. After living in New York as an adult, I know how rare this was. But something about my desperation, and, to be honest, my mother, he felt sorry for. We made it to the cab, and while I sat in the back seat, my mother lay down at my feet on the old checker's big back floor. The cabbie kept up the kind of patter you pray for. You just stretch out there, missus, he said. I wouldn't drive one of those new cabs. Checkers are the only kind of cab for me. Roomy. Makes people feel comfortable. How old are you, young lady? You look a lot like your mother. You know that? On the train ride home, my mother's panic gave way to utter exhaustion. My father picked us up at the station, and once we got home, she went immediately to her room. I was glad we were on vacation at school. I would have time to make up a good story. On the day of the rape, I lay across the back seat of the car and tried to sleep while my mother drove. I did so fitfully. The interior of the car was blue, and I pretended I was on the ocean, floating out to sea. But the closer we got to home, the more I thought about my father. I had learned early that if I interrupted him in his study, I had better have something that would dissipate his anger at being disturbed. I often played myself off my more serious sister. I tried to be a body boy for the benefit of a man who lived in a house where he often complained he was outnumbered by females. My father took great joy in their new dog, a poodle mix, openly declaring how good it was to finally have another male in the house. I wanted to be the child I had always been for my father. My mother and I pulled into the driveway and walked into the house through the garage. My father is a tall man, and I knew him best as a man obsessed with his work, with editing, writing, and speaking Spanish on the phone with colleagues and friends. But that day he was shaking when I saw him at the end of the long hall in the back entranceway of our house. Hey, Dad, I said. Mom followed down the long hall. I saw him look quickly up at her and then focus, or try to focus, on me as I advanced. We hugged each other. We were awkward, ill-fitting. I don't remember him saying anything to me. If he did say, Oh, honey, it's good to have you home, or Alice, I love you, it would have been so uncharacteristic that I think I would have remembered it. But perhaps I don't remember it for that very reason. I did not want new experience. I wanted what I knew. The house I had left that fall for the first time in my life and the father I recognized. How you doing, Dad? I asked. I had thought of this simple question all the way home. With flushed relief, he said, after your mother called, I had five shots of whiskey and I've never been more sober in my life. I lay down on the couch in the family room. My father, in an effort to stay busy that morning, had prepared some lunch fixings in the kitchen. Would you like something to eat, he asked me. In my response, I wished to slam dunk the fact that no one needed to worry about this tough customer. That would be nice, I said, considering the only thing I've had in my mouth in the last 24 hours is a cracker and a cock. 
To the outsider, this might sound awful. To my father, standing in the doorway of the kitchen, and to my mother, who was fussing with our bags, it both shocked them and meant only one thing. The kid they knew was still there. Jesus, Alice, my father responded. He was waiting there on the precipice for my directions. I'm still me, Dad, I said. My parents went into the kitchen together. I don't know how long they spent in there putting together sandwiches that were, probably, already made. What did they do? Did they hug? I can't imagine this, but they might have. Did my mother whisper details about the police and my physical condition, or did she promise she would tell him what she knew after I slept? My sister had made it through finals. The day following my homecoming, when my parents went to pick her up in Philadelphia and pack her things for the summer, I went too. My face was still bruised. My father drove one car and my mother drove the other. The plan was that I would stay in the car while the three of them loaded my sister's things. I was only there for my sister to see, so she would know immediately that I was okay. I also went because I didn't want them alone together and talking about me. I rode up front with my mother. She preferred to take a local route into the city. It took longer, but we all agreed it was more scenic. Of course, the real reason was that the Schoolkill Expressway, known unofficially as the Surekill by those along the main line of Philadelphia, was guaranteed to bring on a flap. So we took Route 30, then snaked along various secondary roads toward our ultimate goal of U-Pin. Over time, the abandoned tracks of the Philadelphia L came to mark the official entrance into the city for me. It was here that pedestrian traffic began, where a man sold papers to drivers from the middle of the road, and a Baptist church played host year-round to weddings and funerals, whose attendees spread out into the streets in formal clothes. I had taken this trip many times with my mother. We would meet my father at his office or use the faculty insurance services through the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. A regular aspect of these trips was my mother's increasing anxiety as we drew closer and closer to the city. Down Chestnut Street, once past the L, my mother always drove in the middle lane of three lanes on the one-way road. My job was to sit in the passenger seat and anticipate an attack. The day we went to pick up my sister, the dynamic shifted. Once past the blocks of row houses, alternating block by block in terms of how well-maintained they were, the street widened. Abandoned buildings, seedy gas stations, and government brick buildings lined the street. Occasionally, one or two still-standing row houses clung together in the midst of a block. In the past, on these drives, I had focused on the buildings. I liked the stair notches in the sides of the remaining row houses, seeing them as the fossils of former lives. Now my focus shifted. So did my mother's. In the car behind us, I would realize soon, so had my father's. It shifted to the people on the streets, not the women, not the children. It was hot, hot in the humid, dank way of northeastern cities during summer. The smell of trash and exhaust fumes seeped through the open windows of our unair-conditioned car. Our ears perked up at random shouts. We listened for menace in the greetings of friend to friend and my mother questioned why so many men were clustered at street corners and slouched in front of buildings. 
This part of Philadelphia, excepting a diminishing Italian population, was black. We passed a corner where three men stood. Behind them, two older men sat in rickety folding chairs, brought out onto the sidewalk to escape the heat inside their homes. I could sense my mother's body tense beside me. The bruises and cuts on my face stung. I felt that every man on that street could see me, that every man knew. I feel sick, I said to my mother. We're almost there. It's weird, Mom, I said, as I tried to stay calm. I knew the old men hadn't raped me. I knew the tall black man in a green suit sitting on a bus station bench hadn't raped me. I was still afraid. What's weird, Alice? She began to knead her knuckles into her chest. How I feel like I've lain underneath all these men. That's ridiculous, Alice. We had stopped at a light. When it turned green, we accelerated. But we were going slowly, enough so that my eyes lingered on the upcoming corner. He was there, back from the street and squatting on the cement, leaning against the clean brick of a newish building. I met his eyes. He met mine. I've lain with you, I said inside my head. It was an early nuance of a realization that would take years to face. I share my life not with the girls and boys I grew up with, or the students I went to Syracuse with, or even the friends and people I've known since. I share my life with my rapist. He is the husband to my fate. We passed out of that neighborhood and into the world of the University of Pennsylvania, where my sister lived. Doors were open in the houses that rented to students, and U-Hauls and rider trucks were double-parked along the curb. Someone had come up with the idea to throw a move-out day keg party. Tall white boys in muscle tees or no shirts at all sat on couches on the sidewalk and drank beer from plastic cups. My mother and I made our way to my sister's dorm and parked. My father arrived a moment later and parked his car nearby. I stayed in the car. My mother, trying to hide a flat from me, had gotten out and was pacing nearby. This was what I heard my father say before my mother shot him a warning look. Did you see those goddamn animals hanging off of every post and... My mother looked quickly at me and then back at my father. Hush, bud, she said. He came over to me and bent down into the window. Are you okay, Alice? I'm fine, Dad, I said. He was sweaty and red-faced, helpless, afraid. I had never heard him refer to blacks like this or to any other minority by condemning them as a group. My father went in to tell my sister we had arrived. I sat in the car with my mother. We didn't talk. I watched the activities of move-out day. Students used large canvas bins like those to shuttle mail in the back rooms of post offices to heap their possessions in. They rolled them across the parking lot to their parents' cars. Families greeted one another. On a scrubby patch of lawn, two boys played frisbee. Radios blared from the windows of my sister's dorm. There was freedom and release in the air, summer like an infection spreading across the campus. There she was. I saw my sister emerge from the building. I got to watch her walk all the way from the door, which was maybe a hundred feet away. 
the same distance I was from my rapist when he said, Hey girl, tell me your name. I remember her leaning down into the car. Your face, she said. Are you okay? It sure took me long enough, I joked to her, but I finally figured out how to wreck your straight A's. Now, Alice, my father said, your sister asked you how you are. I'm getting out of the car, I said to my mother. I feel like an idiot. My family was uncomfortable with this, but I got out and stood there. I said I wanted to see Mary's room, see where she lived, help. I was not hurt badly enough to notice immediately. If you weren't looking my way, you wouldn't have known I was different. But as my family and I walked back toward my sister's dorm, faces at first took in a family like anyone else's, mother, father, and two girls, but then their eyes lingered, just for a moment, and caught something. My swollen eye, the cuts along my nose and cheek, my bloated lips, the delicate purples of bruises blossoming. As we walked, the stairs gathered in number, and I felt them, but pretended I didn't. Beautiful Ivy League boys and girls, brains and nerds, surrounded me. I believed I was doing all this for my family, because they couldn't deal. But I was doing it for myself as well. We took the elevator up, and in it I saw vivid graffiti. A girl had been gang-raped at a fraternity that year. She had filed a complaint and charges. She was trying to prosecute, but the fraternity members and their friends had made it impossible for her to stay in school. By the time I visited Penn's campus, she had withdrawn. In the elevator of my sister's dormitory was a crude ballpoint drawing of her with her legs spread open. A group of male figures were waiting in line beside her. The caption read, Marcy pulls a train. I was crammed in the elevator with my family and Penn students going back up for another load. I stood with my face to the wall, staring at the drawing of Marcy. I wondered where she was and what would become of her. My memories of my family that day are splotchy. I was busy performing, thinking that it was for this that I was loved. But then there were things that hit me too close to the bone the black man squatting on the sidewalk in West Philadelphia, or the beautiful boys at Penn throwing a frisbee, the bright orange disc arcing up and down into my path. I stopped abruptly, and one of the boys ran recklessly to pick it up. As he stood back up, he caught sight of my face. Shit, he said, looking at me, stunned for a moment, distracted from the game. What you have after that is a family, your sister has a dorm room for you to see. Your mother a panic attack to attend. Your father, well, he's being ignorant, and you can shoulder the burden of educating him. It is not all blacks you will begin. These are the things you do instead of collapsing in the bright sun in front of the beautiful boys where, rumor has it, Marcy pulled a train. The four of us drove home, I rode with my father this time. Now I realize that my mother must have been telling my sister everything she knew, the two of them bracing for what might be ahead. Mary brought her essentials inside the house and went up to her bedroom to unpack. The idea was that we would all have an informal meal, what my mother called seek and ye shall find, 
and afterward my father would go back into his study to work, and I could spend time with my sister. But when my mother called for Mary to come down, she didn't answer. My mother called again. Bellowing family names upstairs from the front hall was common practice for us. Even having to do it several times wasn't unusual. Finally, my mother went upstairs, only to come back down a few minutes later. She's locked herself in the bathroom, she told my father and me. Whatever for, my father asked. He was slicing off hunks of provolone and feeding them slyly to the dog. She's upset, bud, my mother said. We're all upset, I said. Why doesn't she join the party? Alice, I think it would mean a lot if you went up to talk to her. I may have grumbled about it, but I went. It was a familiar pattern. Mary would get upset, and my mother would ask me to talk to her. I would knock on her bedroom door and sit on the edge of her bed while she lay there. I would do what I called cheerlead for life, sometimes rallying her to the point where she would come down for dinner or at least laugh at the obscene jokes I called for just this purpose. But that day, I also knew that I was the one she needed to see. I wasn't just the mother-appointed cheerleader. I was the reason why she had locked herself in the bathroom and wouldn't come out. Upstairs, I knocked tentatively on the door. Mary? No answer. Mary? I said. It's me. Let me in. Go away. I could tell she was crying. Okay, I said. Let's deal with this rationally. At some point, I'm going to pee, and if you won't let me in, I'll be forced to pee in your bedroom. There was silence, and then she unlocked the door. I opened it. This was the girls' bathroom. The developer had tiled it pink. If boys had moved into the house, I can only imagine, but Mary and I managed to work up enough of a hatred of the pink ourselves. Pink sink, pink tile, pink tub, pink walls. There was no relief. Mary had gone to stand against the wall, between the tub and the toilet, as far away from me as she could. Hey, I said, what is it? I wanted to hold her. I wanted her to hold me. I'm sorry, she said. You're doing so well with it. I just don't know how to act. When I moved toward her, she moved away. Mary, I said, I feel like shit. I don't know how you're being so strong. She looked at me, tears on her cheeks. It's okay, I said to my sister. It's all going to be okay. Still, she would not let me touch her. She flittered nervously from the shower curtain to the towel rack, like a bird trapped in a cage. I told her I'd be downstairs stuffing my face and that she should join me, and then I closed the door and left. My sister had always been frailer than I was. At a YMCA day camp when we were kids, they'd passed out badges on the last day so that every child got one, the counselors made up categories. I got an arts and crafts badge, symbolized by a palette and brushes. My sister got the badge for being the quietest camper. On her badge, which they made by hand, they glued a gray felt mouse. My sister took it on as her symbol, eventually incorporating a small mouse into the tail of the Y in her signature. Back downstairs, my mother and father asked after her. 
I told them she would be down soon. Well, Alice, my father said, if it had to happen to one of you, I'm glad it was you and not your sister. Christ, bud, my mother said. I only meant that of the two of them. I know what you meant, Dad, I said, and touched my hand to his forearm. See, Jane, he said. My mother felt that family, or the idea of it, should be uppermost in everyone's mind during those first few weeks. This was a hard sell to four solitary souls, but that summer I watched more bad television in the company of my family than I have ever seen before or since. Dinner time became sacred. My mother, whose kitchen is decorated with pithy signs that loosely translated all say, in one form or another, the cook is out, made supper every night. I remember my sister attempted to restrain herself from accusing my dad of smacking. We were all on our best behavior. I cannot imagine what was going on in their minds, how tired they all probably were. Did they buy my strong woman act or just pretend to? In those first weeks, I wore nothing but nightgowns, Lance nightgowns, specially bought by my mother and father. My mother might suggest to my father when he was going out to the grocery that he stop by and get me a new nightgown. It was a way we could all feel rich, a rational splurge. So while the rest of the family sat at the dinner table wearing the normal clothes of summer, I sat in my chair wearing a long white nightgown. I can't remember how it first came up, but once it did, it took over the conversation. The topic was the rapist's weapon. I may have been talking about how the police had found my glasses and the rapist's knife in the same area out by the brick path. You mean he didn't have the knife in the tunnel, my father asked? No, I said. I don't think I understand. What's there to understand, bud, my mother asked. Perhaps, after twenty years of marriage, she knew where he was leading. Privately, she may already have defended me to him. How could you have been raped if he didn't have the knife? Our dinner table could be loud concerning any topic. A favorite point of contention was the preferred spelling or definition of a certain word. It was not uncommon for the Oxford English Dictionary to be dragged into the dining room, even on holidays or with guests present. The poodle mix, Webster, had been named after the more portable mediator. But this time, the argument consisted of a clear division between male and female, between two women, my mother and my sister, and my father. I became aware that I would lose my father if he was ostracized. Though in my defense, my sister and mother shouted at him to be quiet, I told the two of them I wanted to handle it. I asked my father to come upstairs with me, where we could talk. My mother and sister were so angry at him, they were red in the face. My father was like a little boy who, thinking that he understood the rules of the game, is frightened when the others tell him he is wrong. We walked upstairs to my mother's bedroom. I sat him down on the couch and took up a position across from him on my mother's desk chair. I'm not going to attack you, Dad. I said, I want you to tell me why you don't understand, and I'll try to explain it to you. I don't know why you didn't try to get away, he said. I did. 
But how could he have raped you unless you let him? That would be like saying I wanted it to happen. But he didn't have the knife in the tunnel. Dad, I said, think about this. Wouldn't it be physically impossible to rape and beat me while holding a knife the whole time? He thought for a second and then seemed to agree. So most women who are raped, I said, even if there was a weapon, when the rape is going on, the weapon is not there in her face. He overpowered me, Dad. He beat me up. I couldn't want something like that. It's impossible. When I look back on myself in that room, I don't understand how I could have been so patient. All I can think is that his ignorance was inconceivable to me. I was shocked by it, but I had a desperate need for him to understand. If he didn't, he who was my father and who clearly wanted to understand, what man would? He did not comprehend what I had been through or how it could have happened without some complicity on my part. His ignorance hurt. It still hurts, but I don't blame him. My father may not have fully understood, but what was most important to me was that I left the room knowing how much it had meant to him that I took him upstairs and tried, as best I could, to answer his questions. I loved him, and he loved me, and our communication was imperfect. That didn't seem so bad to me. After all, I had been prepared for the news of the rape to destroy everyone in my life. We were living, and in those first weeks, that was enough. Although TV was something I could share with my family, while we each remained in our individual islands of pain, it was also problematic. I'd always liked Kojak. He was bald and cynical and talked curtly out of the side of his mouth while sucking on a lollipop. But he had a big heart. He also policed a city and had a bumbling sibling he got to kick around. This made him attractive to me. So I watched Kojak as I lay in my Lance nightgown and drank chocolate milkshakes. At first, I had difficulty with solid food. Initially, my mouth was sore from the sodomy, and after this, having food in my mouth reminded me too much of the rapist's penis as it lay against my tongue. Watching Kojak alone was endurable, because even though violent, it was so obviously fictional in this violence. Where was the smell, the blood? Why did all the victims have perfect faces and bodies? But when my sister or father or mother came in to watch television with me, I grew tense. I have memories of my sister sitting in the rocker in front of where I was positioned on the couch. She would always ask me if a given program was all right before turning it on. She would be vigilant throughout the hour or two hours it was on. If she worried, I would see her head start to turn around to check on me. I'm okay, Mary, I began saying, able to predict when she might grow concerned. It made me angry with her and with my parents. I needed the pretense that inside the house I was still the same person I'd always been. It was ridiculous but essential, and I felt the stares of my family as betrayals, even though intellectually I knew otherwise. What took me a bit longer to put together was that those television shows were more upsetting to them than they could have ever been to me. They had no idea, because I had not told them, what had happened to me in that tunnel, what the particulars were. 
They were fitting together the horrors of imagination and nightmare and trying to fashion what had been their sister's or child's reality. I knew exactly what had happened. But can you speak those sentences to the people you love? Tell them you were urinated on or that you kissed back because you did not want to die? That question continues to haunt me. After telling the hard facts to anyone, from lover to friend, I have changed in their eyes. Often it is awe or admiration. Sometimes it is repulsion. Once or twice it has been fury hurled directly at me for reasons I remain unsure of. Some men and lesbians see it as a turn-on or a mission, as if by sexualizing our relationship they can pull me back from the wreckage of that day. Of course, their best efforts are largely useless. No one can pull anyone back from anywhere. You save yourself or you remain unsaved. My mother was warden of the vestry at St. Peter's Episcopal Church. We had been members of this church ever since my family moved to Pennsylvania when I was five. I liked the pastor, Father Bruniger, and his son, Paul, who was my age. In college, I would recognize Father Bruniger in the work of Henry Fielding. He was an amiable, if not overly insightful man, and he stood in the center of a small, devoted congregation. Paul sold Christmas wreaths to the parishioners each year, and his wife, Phyllis, was tall and high-strung. This last quality made her a target for sympathetic but competitive commentary from my mother. I liked to play in the graveyard after service. I liked my parents' pre- and post-commentary in the car. I liked being doted on by parishioners. And I loved, absolutely was infatuated with, Myra Narbon. She was my favorite old lady, my mother's favorite too. Myra liked to say that she got old before it was popular. Often her large stomach was a punchline or her thinning angel hair. Among a congregation filled with distinguished mainline types where the same outfits, perfectly tailored but with an inch of appearing downright shabby, were worn each and every Sunday, Myra was a breath of fresh air. She had all the blue blood she needed, but she wore large 70s wraparounds that were, in her words, as tacky as tablecloths. Often her shirt didn't come together all the way, as her chest sloped closer and closer to the earth. She tucked Kleenex in her bra, which my own East Tennessee grandmother did, and she slipped me extra cookies when I came in from playing in the graveyard. She was married to a man named Ed. Ed didn't come often to service, but when he did, he appeared to be thinking of how soon he could leave. I had been to their house. They had a pool and liked to have young people swim in it. They had a dog they'd named Freckles because of his spots and a few cats, including the fattest calico I had ever seen. During junior high and high school, Myra nurtured my desire to be a painter. She painted herself and had turned their greenhouse into her studio. I think she also understood, without ever discussing it with me, that I wasn't very happy at home. During my freshman year, while I was in Syracuse going out with Mary Alice to the college bars along Marshall Street, things happened back home that were alien to me. Myra left doors unlocked. She went in and out of the house to garden. Freckles needed putting out. 
They had never had any trouble, and although their house was positioned far back from the road and hidden by a veil of trees, they lived in a neighborhood of gentlemen farmers. So Myra couldn't have imagined a day when three men in black stocking masks would cut her phone lines before forcing their way in. They separated Myra and Ed and tied Myra up. They were unhappy with the lack of cash in the house. They beat Ed badly enough that he fell backward down the stairs to the basement level below. One man went down after him, one cased the house. One, whom the others called Joey, stayed with Myra, calling her old woman and hitting her with open-handed blows. They took what they could. Joey told Myra to stay put, not to go anywhere, and that her husband was dead. They left. Myra lay on the floor and struggled free of the rope. She could not get down the stairs to check on Ed because she felt something broken in her foot. They had also, though she didn't know it then, broken her ribs. So lame. Oh, so lame. So I thought I'd been reading for the last couple seconds. The book missed uh, some of the really important parts and I've been reading it, but my uh, audio was not switched. So I'll have to go back and get it again the the archive will be pristine but folks just missed a few minutes i've been reading away and folks that were listening in missed everything that i read so i'll go back and do those last couple pages again see i always hate narrating it's always something like this that throws things off hopefully there will be no more of this as we go transferring from cassette so we read uh myra they left myra lay on the floor and struggled free of the rope she could not get down the stairs to check on ed because she felt something broken in her foot they had also though she didn't know it then broken her ribs defying joey's orders myra left the house she was too afraid to go out onto the road she crawled through the underbrush behind the backyard half a mile or so before reaching another less frequented road she stood up barefoot and bleeding finally a car approached and she flagged it down she went to the car window please get help she said to the lone driver three men broke into our house i think they killed my husband i can't help you lady she realized who was in the car it was joey and he was alone it was his voice she got a good look at him there was no stocking mask get off me he said as she grabbed in recognition at his arm he sped away and she fell down in the road but she kept going and reached a house where she phoned for help ed was rushed to the hospital if she had not left the house when she did the doctors later told her he would have bled to death then that winter st peter's was rocked by paul Broninger's arrest Paul had stopped selling Christmas wreaths in junior high school. He grew his curly red hair long and didn't come to church much more, much anymore. My mother told me that Paul had a separate entrance to the house, that Father Broninger felt he had lost control over him. In February, high on acid, Paul walked into a florist shop on Route 30 and asked a woman named Mrs. Mole for a single yellow rose. He and his partner, waiting in the car, had cased the joint for a week. Paul had asked for a single rose each time, watching the register as Mrs. Mole rang it up. 
but they picked the wrong day to rob her. Her husband had left moments before with the week's cash. Mrs. Mole had less than four dollars in her cash drawer. Paul flew into a rage. He stabbed Mrs. Mole fifteen times in the face and neck, yelling, Die, bitch, die, over and over again. Mrs. Mole did not obey. She made her way out of the shop, collapsing in a bank of snow outside. A woman saw the blood, which had slowly trickled down the rise of the bank. She followed the trail and found Mrs. Mole unconscious in the snow. That May, after my rape, I arrived back to a congregation that was traumatized no one more so than Father Brauninger himself. As the warden to the vestry, my mother had been privy to his pain that spring. Paul had been arrested, and though still a minor at seventeen, would be tried as an adult. Father Brauninger had no idea that his son had been drinking a fifth of whiskey a day since the age of fifteen. He knew nothing about the drugs found in Paul's room, and little about his truancy at school. Paul's insolence Father Brauninger had chalked up to being part of an adolescent stage. Because she was warden, and because she trusted him, my mother told Father Brauninger that I had been raped. He announced it to the church. He did not use the word raped, but he said assaulted brutally in a park near her campus. It was a robbery. Those words meant only one thing to any old-timer worth her salt. As the story made the rounds, they realized I had no broken bones. How brutal could it be? Oh, that. Father Brauninger showed up at the house. I remember the pity in his eyes. Even then, I sensed he thought of his son in the same way he did me, as a child who, on the precipice of adulthood, had lost it all. I knew through my mother that Father Brauninger had trouble holding Paul accountable for the stabbing of Mrs. Mole. He blamed drugs, he blamed the twenty-two-year-old accomplice, he blamed himself, he could not blame Paul. My family gathered in our living room, the least used room of the house. We sat stiffly on the edges of the antique furniture. My mother got Fred, as the adults called Father Brauninger, something to drink. Tea. There was small talk. I sat on the blue silk couch, my father's prized possession from which all children and dogs were banned. For Christmas one year I had coaxed a basset onto the light blue silk by using a biscuit. I then snapped photos of her chowing down and had them framed, presenting them to my father as a gift. Father Brauninger had us stand and hold hands in a circle. He was wearing his black robes and white collar. The silk tassel from the rope around his waist swayed for a moment in the air, then stilled. Let us pray, he said. I was shocked. My family was a family of commentary and intellect and skepticism. This felt like hypocrisy to me. As he prayed, I looked up 
and around at Mary, my parents, and Father Bruninger. Their heads were bent, their eyes were closed. I refused to close my eyes. We were praying for my soul. I stared at Father Bruninger's crotch, thought about what he was under all that black. He was a man. He had a dick like every man did. What right had he, I wondered, to pray for my soul? I thought of something else. His son, Paul. As I stood there, I thought of Paul being arrested and Paul having to serve time. I thought of Paul being brought down low and how good that must feel for Mrs. Mole. Paul was in the wrong. Father Brauninger, who had spent his life praising God, had lost his son, really lost him, more than I ever could be lost. I was in the right. I felt powerful, suddenly, and felt what my family was doing. This act of faith, or belief, or charity, was dumb. I was angry at them for seeing this charade through were standing on the rug in the living room, room of special occasions, of holidays and celebrations, and praying for me to a God I wasn't sure they believed in. Eventually, Father Bruniger left. I had to hug him. He smelled of aftershave and the mothball smell of the closet at the church where he hung his vestments. He was a clean, well-meaning man. He was in his own crisis but there was no way then, via God or otherwise, that I could be with him. Then the old ladies came, the marvelous, loving, knowing old ladies. As each old lady came, she was shuttled into the living room and seated in my parents' prized wing chair. This chair provided an unparalleled vantage point. From it, the seated person could see the rest of the living room. Off to their right would be the blue couch and into the dining room, where the silver tea set was placed on display. When these ladies visited, they were served tea in my parents' wedding china and attended to by my mother as honored and unusual guests. Betty Jidles came first. Betty Jidles had money. She lived in a beautiful house near Valley Forge, which my mother coveted and by which she drove very quickly, so as not to appear to be coveting it. Betty had a face full of deep mainline wrinkles. She looked like an exotic breed of dog, sort of a cultivated Sharpe, and she spoke with an aristocratic accent that my mother explained with the words, old money. I wore a nightgown and robe for Mrs. Jidles. Again, I sat on the blue couch. She gave me a book, Aikenfield, Portrait of a Chinese Village. She had remembered that when I was little, I had told the ladies at coffee hour I wanted to be an archaeologist. We passed the brief time of her visit making small talk. My mother helped. She talked about the church and about Fred. Betty listened. Every few sentences, she gave a nod or contributed a word or two. I remember her looking over at me on the couch while my mother was talking, how much she wanted to say something and how the word just wasn't one anyone could say. Peggy O'Neill, whom my parents called an old maid, came next. Peggy was not mainline money. Hers came from having taught school all her life and being scrupulous with her savings. 
She lived far off the road in a sweet house that my mother never lingered over. She dyed her hair the darkest black. She specialized, along with Myra, in having seasonal handbags. Bags made out of wicker with watermelons painted on them for spring, or bags made out of beads threaded with rawhide thongs for fall. Her clothes were workaday shifts, madras, and seersucker. The material seemed meant to distract the viewer from analyzing the shape of her body. Now that I've been a teacher, I recognize them as a teacher's clothes. If Peggy brought me a gift, I don't remember it. But Peggy, who was less reserved than Mrs. Jidles, didn't need a gift. I even had to remember to call her Miss O'Neill instead of Peggy. She cracked jokes and made me laugh. She talked about being afraid in her house. She told me it was dangerous to be a woman alone. She told me I was special and that I was strong and that I would get over this. She also told me, laughing, but in all seriousness, that it wasn't such a bad thing to grow up to be an old maid. Alrighty, old maid, we will pick up Myra came last. Uh, always some wackiness uh, with the narration, although I'm glad I don't have to read it and... Uh, generally very glad listeners don't have to read it then it would be them having to you know do all that stuff anywho we'll pick up myra came last uh that's the next section uh as we continue to read alice seabold lucky i'm so thankful that i was paying attention there because that was really important the section that was not in the audio i have to go back to listen again to see if that was just omitted or what i think it might have just been a snag in the cassette or what have you but got it included the number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the email until justice at gmail dot com until justice at gmail dot com feel free to drop an email if you have commentary or questions and that number one more time seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to uh to participate much obliged for your uh patience while we had our little brief uh audio snafu uh let's see i will <laughs> I'll read one little snippet of email and then we'll get to folks who dialed in uh, with commentary until justice at gmail.com. The email again. Uh, so first email. One of our callers wrote in. He says. Part one. Uh, I do not think that Miss Siebold was raped by a black male. We had a number of folks who said that uh, last week. From what I've read, the racial climate in Syracuse, New York at this time would make this account hard to believe in the way that she has described it. She said that this black male savagely ravaged her in an alley with her legs up along with fist insertion. All of this is apparently visible. She stated a frat party was letting out. She also explained it was passers-by cheering the act on. I do remember the explanation. It almost sounded like that last week. A black child or adult, in my opinion, would not be able to pull this off without white intervention. 
Mrs. Siebold allegedly described a child to the police officers. She would lead her readers to believe that a child has honed his raping skills to the point described in this fictional account. She did say the age range was like 16 to 18. Teen. That'd be younger than Michael Brown Jr. generally. Part 2. Her family life was chaotic at best. That is being real euphemistic. Uh, number two, could she have been rebellious against her parents? Hmm. Hmm. I have to think about that. I think somebody said that. I was talking about this book before, and they were saying, "Don't." Isn't that like a a, a trope of some sort? Like that's kind of cliche. Like you go off for white college students, they go off and want to rebel against their parents and do drugs and alcohol and all kinds of wacky sex stuff like isn't that kind of a, a trope they make movies and stuff about that American Pie and all the rest right might be talking crazy uh, let's see uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary on the first chunk O reading let us know Gonna be her retired firefighter in Florida, yes, sir. Yes, uh, the uh, the uh, word Negro uh, on professional paperwork. Uh, I did. I did a little bit of studying in between the last uh, the last uh, uh, book reading and today. And uh, from my understanding, from the, my studying, there in 1981, there was on some official documents that racial classification. So I was wrong about saying that it was uh, not on documentations back in 1981, although I don't recall it being there. I mean, when I uh, was uh, obtaining the job of a Dade County firefighter, it wasn't on. It wasn't on. uh, I don't recall it being on the paper at all. Uh, And also filling out, just filling out reports uh, in itself. It wasn't uh, on those documents, but some some official accounts said it was, so so be it. Uh, but I hear that you're stating now that uh, the, the the situation that was talked about was in 1991. Well, the rape happened in 1981, but the book itself wasn't published until 1999. So just what I said at the beginning was that okay. hey, even though yes. Negro was, like I said last week, on official forms until real recently. By that time, even by 1980, it had started to fall out of favor. And certainly by the time this book was published, 1999, that could have easily been one like, hey, uh, let's take Negro out. I know you said Negro at the time, but let's just put black in just because, you know, we don't want to. We already got all this rape stuff here. Like, why not even take it out in 99? Leave it in. Yeah, I can recall it being popular when I was in in elementary school. Uh, but by the time I'm just specifically now from a cultural standpoint, 
uh, social standpoint. Uh, but by the time I was in middle school, uh, it was it was uh, not spoken of uh, because of the quote unquote black power movement uh, it be- in black became the more popular term in the round when I was in middle school. Uh, and that was in the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was just thinking also because some 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 uh, listeners uh, are suspecting that. Uh, uh, well, how how did you describe that? Uh, in other words, black females at the same trying to get at their uh, parents, upset their parents. The worst thing you a, a white female could could have done back during that time, and even now is to state that uh they had sex with a black male you know <laughs> i mean uh you know it, it, whether it was rape or not you know it, uh but also from the standpoint of uh her her having this uneasiness around black males after the so-called incident it tells me that it was a uh, a uh, pattern in her personal life that she was used to to be suspicious or negative towards black people in general anyway uh, by her having that this this little this this not little but this uh, uh, hang up about being around black males uh, she's trying to twist the twist the whole scenario into trying to make the reader think that it's only because she was raped is why she had that, you know, as opposed to having a issue with all males after one gets raped uh, is primarily is she makes a distinction in the book uh, that uh, of, of some kind of uh, anxiety uh, with black males. And uh, that's all I have to say in the first first half. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, not generalized, didn't become a problem with all dudes, even though she did have a word or two to say about old Father uh, Bronigan. If I'm sound, saying his name correctly. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Maybe her? Yes, sir. Yes, good evening, uh, Gus. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, callers. I have a, this particular section, I had a lot of uh, notes I had took because um, I read ahead. But anyway, I just wanted to, I guess, offer commentary first to say how refreshing it would be that instead of a tacky apology, Ms. Seabold had given something material to um, directly to Mr. Broadwater and instead of forgiveness to the racist suspect, he had pursued litigation. Um, I did some research, like I said, looking back at some of the research and reporting that of the book before and after Mr. Brewer's exoneration. It was fascinating. I saw one particular review of the book where a white woman of college age was heaping praise upon the book, only later to recap by pinning a comment to a comment section. And then all another observation I, I observed was every 
critiques seemed to preface the critique saying that Sibo was indeed assaulted and never once considering that she may have fabricated the entire episode. And then I think we got yeah, gotten to chapter three where she has a proclivity to fabricate histrionic his, his scenarios that was on page 43. And like I said, we talked about the the family life and the, the mother's alcohol alcoholism, drug use, and the father seemed to be under, emotionally unavailable. And then I also talked about, looked into um, Paoli, Pennsylvania, was at a so-called sundown town, and then, or, or I guess I'm starting to call it a region where non-whites face greater risk of mistreatment to a substantial population of racist suspects, men, women, and children. Um, let's see what else. And then that, that whole entire passage where she describes driving through downtown Philadelphia counters a lie where in her apology she had stated uh, quote, marital sides just starting to acknowledge and address the systemic issues in our judicial system that too often means that justice for some comes at the expense of others. Unfortunately, this was not a debate or a conversation or even a whisper when I was born in 1981 and I contrasted it to the um, quote from the father, did you see those goddamn animals hanging off every post? And, and she quotes her father remarking. So she's made this trip many times before, according to her account. Now she's acutely aware of the predominance of black males in the downtown area. And that suddenly every black male is a rape, rapist. And also I wanted to add on to your observation of the, the virginity uh, or virgin being played up and also wanted to see if you could, I wasn't able to do it with my copy that you sent me, but the, um, the, the phrase good girl being bandied about quite frequently. And I wanted to see if, um, the, how, how frequently that one comes up. And I wanted to alert you to that. I'll leave my line for now. Thank you. Let's see. The phrase good girl is in the book nine times and we have heard it already five times. So half <laughs> heard it a good chunk. That's quite a bit because we've only read like four or five chapters. So that's like once a chapter. Good girl, good girl, good girl. And then it's going to keep popping up in the book another four or five times. Uh Let's see. Much obliged. Dread 138. Again, he was going to narrate. Always something with that narration, man. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Mo in Dallas. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, Greetings, guests. Uh, greetings, listeners and callers. Thank you for the program. Um, uh, uh, starting off, uh, I've decided because of the last reading that I wanted to read this or listen to the uh, sessions, not, you know, uh, in, in throwing out the fact that um, she, uh, this is, you know, untrue for the, the person who, who was accused. Um, and since uh, now I, I won't listen, I won't take it, intake it, or receive it through that lens. I, I would just, uh, I'd rather hear the information. Um, 
Um, I also noticed the uh, the 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 uh, level of, of anger for all uh, black black men after after she was supposedly victimized by one. Um, the fact that they were groups of animals and and things that the previous uh, callers stated. Um, uh, and and I did notice the contrast because the uh, the, the what were they the, the the beautiful boys that raped Marcy uh, like it sounds it it seems like uh, if that was a real occurrence and it sounds like a very horrible thing uh, to have posters and and things of the sort you know of your or your victimization put, uh, you know, put on the wall and whatnot um, I I, I I personally like think it would be wise for for people in general to be aware of groups of uh, drinking college age men like the beautiful uh, ones that she she uh, that she was referring to. Um, as far as uh, the family's commentary about. Um, her victimization. Uh, I do not respect. I have zero respect for jokes uh, or, or funny, off-putting comments about uh, sexual assault. Uh, I, 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 it, that really has is something I, I, I personally don't uh, condone, and I don't understand uh, how a victim or a parent or any other person who understands what that act is could make jokes about it. That's just as is that was that was that was very just odd. And and, and to 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 quote to be in a household of of, of a family with a family of intellects, I think she said she was a family of intellects. Like that is not smart. Uh, and I wanted to know if um, I couldn't find any. I did look, uh, uh, but uh, I, I wasn't expecting to find any. But I tried to see if she had any crime photos uh, because of the way that the bruising was described. Um, uh, it's like uh, so. If anyone knows how to get access to crime photos or something, I'd be interested. Thank you. I need my line. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. I have not uh, seen any crime photos from this case myself. They don't have any uh, in the memoir, at least none of the versions of it that I've uh, seen thus far. And uh, I haven't seen any online either. I was thinking the same thing. Did they take pictures of, you know, because she's talking about she's got like bruises and cuts on her face and things like it's visible, uh, the evidence of this attack. But yeah, I've not found them. If somebody can uh, invest a minute or so to see if they have uh, pics that would be grand uh, I know they said uh, at least some of the reports that I've read they talked about the rape kit uh, from this case and how that was lost or destroyed or they don't have it anymore so it could have been that they took pictures and they're gone or could have been this happened so long ago everybody didn't have an iPhone so we can take pictures lickety split uh, let's see other folks who dialed in much obliged uh, Mo in Dallas uh, much obliged. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, you have commentary to share. Proceed. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. 
All right, uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the part where the father made the quote, did you see those goddamn animals hanging off every post? I thought that he was referring to what was earlier mentioned, the tall white boys in muscle tees and no T-shirts at all. Um, because later on, she says that uh, I had never heard him refer to blacks like this or to any other minorities by condemning them as a group. A- am I correct on that? Is, did, was he referring to the white guys or were, was he referring to the black people uh, when he was passing by the neighborhood? Uh, let's see. I'll go back to the passage. Uh, so I'm tracking back. I'll give us full context. So they're in the car. My father arrived a moment later and parked his car nearby. I stayed in the car. My mother, trying to hide a flap from me, had gotten out and was pacing nearby. This was what this was what I heard my father say before my mother shot him a warning look. Did you see those goddamn animals hanging off every post? And my mother quickly uh, looked. My mother looked quickly at me and then back at my father. Hush, bud, she said. Uh, I thought he was talking about the black guys uh, now immediately before that he says we passed out of the neighborhood and into the world of the University of Pennsylvania where my sister lived doors were open in the houses that rented two students and U-Hauls and rider trucks were double parked along the curb someone had come up with the idea to throw a move out day keg party tall white boys in muscle tees or no shirts at all sat on couches on the sidewalk and drank beer from plastic cups now that is immediately before all of that all the commentary about the uh, black people and them being outside and all the rest of it is like a couple uh, paragraphs over but that I thought he was talking about the black students like it's all close proximity right you got two groups of males being described the other group is not racialized and she has to come back because she comes back later on and talks about her dad making ignorant remarks about black people. I thought that was the confirmation that this was about the black people, not the, the beautiful white students at UPenn. Um, I guess if we could go quick before we give Henry back, you can tell us maybe we got it wrong. Maybe he was talking about the white students. Do we want to do a quick vote? The people that have a hand up so far, like retired firefighter, uh, Mo in Dallas, uh, I've dread one three eight is still here. Uh, did you all think the dad was talking about the black people in Pennsylvania, or did you think he was talking about the white students who were doing their kegger party? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, when he was referring to the animals and pole, pole hanging right. off the poles, uh, they were black. I mean, I say that because he wanted, I, I, I believe she was describing her mother trying to trying to warn her father about comments about black men in a negative manner. That's what I, that's what I took from it. Uh, I okay. That's Mo in Dallas, uh, retired firefighter. Dread one, three, you, one of you all give your vote on who did you think? Yeah. I, I, I thought, I thought, uh, he, uh, he was referring to, uh, black males for the same reason. Okay. Yeah. Two for two, uh, dread one three eight. 
I definitely thought he was referring to the black males and the um, hanging out on the corners. Okay. Well, I'll include myself. So we're four for four, but we could all be wrong. So what did you think again? Did you thought he was talking about the white students, Henry in Chicago? Oops. Get that again. Let's try that again. Hello. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I got, I got disconnected. Um, I missed the vote. What was the what was the vote on? Uh... We were four for four. We all thought that he was talking about the black people, so we could all be wrong or what have you. Give what did you think? Well, that, like I said, I I saw this short paragraph where uh, after you read, uh, you know, my mother looked quickly at me, then back at my father, hush bub, she said. He came over to me and bent down into the window. Are you okay, Alice? I'm fine. Dad, I said. He was sweaty and red-faced, helpless, afraid. I had never heard him refer to blacks like this or to any of the minorities by condemning them as a group. That's the paragraph that I kind of questioned. Was he talking about the black people or the, or the, or the white people that were hanging out uh, at the University of Pennsylvania? That was, that was where I was kind of like confused at, like, you know, who is he talking about when he said that uh, when he said that statement? Because it was like right, you know, right before, you know, like a little bit after he, you know, he mentioned that statement. And this is what uh, Seabolt uh, was talking about. But, you know, I I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe I might be confused <laughs> about it. Um, but, you know, going on, um, you know, now that we know, uh, like I said, at least most of us know uh, that this whole story might be fabricated. I know some people still might hold to the fact that she was still raped just by not, uh, just by uh, not the, the black guy that she claimed that raped her. Uh, I take to the, I take to the point that she wasn't raped at all. Um, but, you know, the story itself, uh, because of the fact that, you know, sometimes when, people fabricate these stories, you know, they, and, and especially when she's trying to, you know, put it into a book, you know, she kind of spills a little truth into it. And it's kind of confusing, you know, like, you know, just bringing up that, you know, question about, about her father, because, you know, uh, take it for the fact that her father, uh, if that's true about him questioning, questioning, you know, the actual rape, you know, uh, that might be something that she might be admitting, you know, to be the truth because like, it seems like the father even knows that, you know, what she's saying is very questionable, you know, asking about the knife. And, um, I don't know what's going on in her mind in regards to, um, looking at father Bernings crouch, uh, during prayer, uh, that just seems kind of, weird to me but um but you know like i said the 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 issue or you know the confusion that i have about whether the father was talking about the black people the white people uh was on my mind uh in the last uh reading so but that's all i have on in my line hmm. 
Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Seems like we might have a growing number of folks who think that uh, there was no rape or, yeah, think there was no rape, that that is all a fabrication from beginning to end. Um, let's see. Non-Clemson grad, maybe Miss C. Uh, if you want to give us your views and then uh, what did you think? Did you think the dad was talking about the white UPenn students or did you think he was talking about the black guys? Unfortunately, um, I didn't hear all of that part of the story, so I can't really answer that question. But um, I will say this, based on the way you're talking about it and everyone thinks it's going, so I'm inclined to believe everyone that the, dog, the dad was referencing black people, especially when you talk in that particular context. You don't usually see, you know, even when white people act the way that the, the father was describing, you don't usually see white people talking about white people like that. Usually it's about, you know, black people. Um, I just had two quick things to say. Um, the first one was in the, um, the reference, um, in reference to the article that you read at the beginning of the broadcast. Because of the rape conviction, Mr. Anthony Broder decided not to bring kids into this world. You know, when I heard that particular um, line, I couldn't help but to think about the five definitions, five definitions of genocide that are accepted worldwide. And about, you know, I believe one of those definitions is not allowing a group of people to have children. And obviously, um, even though Mr. Broadwater was found innocent, um, his life is so destroyed that he could not, um, even though with all the proof that he was innocent, I mean, I can imagine, would you want to bring your kid into this world besides the fact that he's still struggling? How in the world could he ever explain to his child that he was accused of rape, found innocent, yet he continues to struggle? And how other people view him, even though he didn't do it. And of course, like I think someone said earlier, I'm personally starting to believe that this woman was never raped. If anything, maybe she had sex with a black person that simply regretted it, or someone that she didn't want to find out that she had sex with a black person. You know, is going to you know spill the beans, so to speak, or uh, snitch, or not snitch. Um, you know, tell someone else, and she just got embarrassed and then turned into this whole farce. And then the second thing is, uh, you said uh, Syracuse um, University doesn't look like a rundown ghetto where you would get raped. Um, I found that a little hilarious because um, I've I personally never been to Syracuse um, University, but I imagine it's a very nice looking campus like yeah, most campuses other than maybe HBCUs. Um, but outside of not looking like a rundown place that experiences a lot of rape, colleges by themselves, particularly the white um, institutions, are particularly notorious uh, for rape, um, at least some um, the amount of um, rape cases that happen on campuses. Now, we'll, I, I, um, as I get older and I read some of these stories and the way um, women tend to be acting, um, I'm starting to believe that a lot of these rape cases are not necessarily rape cases, but you know, sex, um, sexual experiences with a, with a bit of regret. And then you know, someone just gets a little upset, and then you know, it turns into a whole, oh, he, um, I was raped, as opposed to I'm embarrassed about what I chose to do. And with that, I meet my line. Much obliged, non-Clemson grad. Uh, I think that was Rolling Stone, my alma mater, 2014. Oh, my gosh. Do people want to go back and, and, and read uh, Sabrina Erdely? That's her name. White woman who came out and yes, they raped her and blah, blah, blah. And then they had to go back and do all that retracting. And yes old Brock Turner remember that one too remember he was at Stanford 
raped uh, that white woman got convicted and then they didn't even give him any hard time about all of it and they were at a fraternity party too let's see uh, I think we got all the callers I will read a note uh, one of our folks who wrote in and then maybe I'll share a quick thought and then we can get to the second audio uh, one of our other investors wrote in chapter 3 is the screen not doing okay uh the house had been ravaged by fire he thought we might scavenge things inside he sent me up the stairs this seems incredibly incorrect and especially sending a child up the fire destroyed stairs too number two an old bald man in a yellow checker cab pulled up NYC cab drivers are notorious for not picking up black males. They make lots of joke about it. Even in Shaft, we just read that. That's in the beginning part of Shaft. He tries to get a cab and they drive right past him. Uh, comedians have, uh, have made so many jokes about it. It has become cliche. Even President Obama. Uh, chapter four. Number one. Only thing I've had in my mouth is a cracker and a cock. An interesting alliteration. Sounds like it could be contrived. Hmm. I'm not saying she's lying again, is she? Oh. Number two, this part of Philadelphia, accepting a diminishing Italian population, was black. This sounds to me like she was traveling through West Philadelphia, not that far from where the Move massacre took place. What in the Philadelphia? I think you pin is close to where Move uh, that happened at Osage Avenue. It's not like right there, but I suspect it's walking. To, it's been a while since I've been in Philadelphia, but I think it is close. Man, good geography, sir. Uh, number three, I share my life with my rapist. <sighs> he is the husband of my fate. Are you serious? Jesus, gag me metaphors. This reads like a form of Stockholm syndrome and maybe a little sexual. Number four, my father, did you see these God damn it. Yeah, that's black people. That's black. Why, uh, I think non Clemson grad just said, and he said he didn't even hear that portion of the book. White people generally don't talk about white people that way. This is language where I'm talking about niggers. Not just animals. God damn animals. That's the way they talk about black people in The Godfather. Animals. Ah. Uh. I lost my place. Got me all excited on the point. Uh, uh, okay. When non-white victims commit crimes, the entire group is also convicted. When suspected racists perform the same act, it is looked upon as an isolated event. Brock Turner. They didn't come and indict all white men. Jeffrey Epstein. Hey, we can go current. Uh, Gisseline Maxwell include the white women too. Super current. Number five. How could you have been raped? if he didn't have a knife in other words why didn't you fight harder to protect your virginity from this black beast Ooh, I hadn't even thought about that do we think the dad would have said the same thing if it if she had said she was raped by a white white person hmm either way I thought that was a good point the dad questioning chapter five uh, number one distinguished mainline types that's the church people the main line is a suburban part of philadelphia so named because it was the former railroad line of the pennsylvania railroad which connected the wealthy towns along its route the author seems intent on distinguishing herself from the wealthier whites 
she was raised way more resource with way more resources than the average black person in Philadelphia. Say it twice. Uh, her father is a professor at an Ivy League college. This is such a common tactic by suspected racists. Excellent point. Number two, she realized who was in the car. It was Joey. Paul Brenninger's arrest. He stabbed Mrs. Mole 15 times. White sacrifice and victimization is the theme of this chapter. Whatever traumas she describes in no way compares with the collective trauma that non-white victims in Philadelphia experience or Anthony Broadwater. Uh, number three, my mother told Father Brauninger that I've been raped. He announced it to the church. Is this a common thing in the white culture? Announcing this type of trauma to a congregation? They gossip, so I don't know if it's like this type of shared type of thing where you would just get up and do a share in church, but I mean, there's a lot of gossip, so. Number four, uh, Father Brauninger, then the old ladies, Jonathan, uh, 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 this visitor ritual seems really bizarre to me. It seems voyeuristic as opposed to imparting empathy towards the victim. I agree wholeheartedly. And apparently she didn't receive it in the spirit of sympathy because she's grousing about people coming and making a big fuss and all the rest, except for Peggy, who was laughing. Uh, let me see how quick I can get through some of my notes and then we will push off to chapter two uh, or audio segment two. We're in chapter five. Sorry. Uh, okay, notes that I took from this week. She said she talked about when she was young and she would do all these uh, projects at school uh, in an arts and crafts class. And she said that they would approve whatever project that she wanted, regardless of the materials or how impossible it was. I just think having that sort of freedom, uh, I don't think black children, boys or girls experience that very often where you can just be free to make mistakes or to try things or just to let your imagination run wild, especially in an academic context. Like, wow. Uh, let's see. She said, She hung out with uh, gay kids when she was younger. She talked about how one of them fell in love with a football player and got beaten up. I was like, ooh, was that the homophobic black guys who did that or no? Uh, let's see. <sighs> Lots of white vict uh, victimization throughout this entire text and especially trying to emphasize that, you know, she didn't have tons of money and that her family wasn't like the blue blue blood wealthy whites of Pennsylvania lots of that throughout the book uh, even though I think it's super important like man you have one child uh, she has a one sister who's in college and then she's at Syracuse which is private like man how many black families have two different children at two different elite universities private even at the same time Next, let's see. And to do writing, you're not even doing like a skill to be an engineer or a scientist or something. You know, you're going to do writing. What? It's not even practical. Let's see. The dad and everything about the dad's attention. When he comes in, she says, I would realize soon in terms of attention. So had my father's his attention. His focus had shifted. It shifted to the people on the streets, not the women not the children black miss andrea i'm only looking at these black dudes it was hot hot in the humid dank way of northeastern cities during the summer the smell of trash and exhaust fumes seeped through the open windows of our uncon 
unair conditioned car they're so poor our ears perked up at random shouts we listened for menace in the greetings of friend to friend and my mother questioned why so many men were clustered at street corners that see that's more hanging off light poles she said the white guys were sitting down they had furniture these are just you know apes on street corners and slouched in front of buildings this part of philadelphia accepting a diminishing italian population was black Ugh. Ugh. And I think that's so important because I just said Jeffrey Epstein, Gisling Maxwell, you got tons of white rapists more than we could name. I mean, hey, you're talking about the Catholic Church. My God, the Boy Scout. I mean, we could go on all day long, not individuals, collective white rapists where they can cover it for each other and have billions of dollars to hide things behind attorneys. Anthony Broadwater doesn't have all that. And he was innocent. Jeffrey Epstein is guilty. Gisling Maxwell probably too. Uh, but it doesn't become all white people are guilty and dangerous and potential rapists doesn't even become all white men just black guys she doesn't even racialize any other men in this book except black males retired firefighter said that it doesn't become a general Ooh, I don't want to be around males in general it's just black males now you can say hey the rapist is a black male but eh you get on that let me get to my notes and just well, I can just walk through the book and hopefully we can hurry up I'll give myself four minutes uh, it's weird mom I said as I try to stay calm I knew the old men hadn't raped me I knew the tall black man in a green suit sitting on the bus station bench hadn't raped me I was still afraid why would that be the case you're not afraid of any of these white students on campus where I know it's probably some underage drinking going on you probably got some Brock Turner's right in uh, training you're not afraid of them even when there's evidence that some of these folks are rapists too right not afraid of them just the black guys white genetic annihilation too uh yeah because there's no fear when she talks about these white guys there's no fear at all it's just we passed that neighborhood onto the world of the University of Pennsylvania this is a whole different world we left the planet right where the white people are at UPenn where my sister lived doors were open in the houses that rented to students no fear of you know we don't have to lock to keep the rape and negras away and U-Hauls and rider trucks were double parked along the curb that's a crime someone had come up with the idea to throw a move out day keg party that's public consumption and alcohol in public that's crime number one and again I'm sure a lot of these folks are not 21 that's underage consumption of alcohol which is a big part of all these rapes on campus got lots of documentaries talking about that not afraid it's saying that they don't get racialized man all this criminal activity and they're drinking in public man urinating in public man fake IDs and everything rape culture gone amok all those fraternities they got tons of that now guess all that hadn't been published at the time this book came out in 99 Let's see. All the, the feminist slant with this phantom gang rape. That was when I was like, hey, give me the name. Give me the details. Like, you're not just going to tell me about another phantom rape so you can just pile on and then there's no evidence to substantiate any of this. Name, date, details. Like I said, Rolling Stone 2014. No, you do not just get to come out and say that there was a rape and this happened and oh, it was bad and we got a conviction and I don't even have any details. No. Uh, let's see. 
the black man see again racialized the black man squatting on the sidewalk in West Philadelphia now she had already told us about her mom had to sit down on the steps on the cement when she wasn't feeling well it couldn't be that this black male was having a problem something was going on couldn't even just be that he was houseless for the moment needing shelter no 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 the menacing black male potential rapist squatting on the sidewalk in West Philadelphia or the beautiful boys at Penn throwing a frisbee they're beautiful and they're not even racialized. You just assume that they're white since they're Prince, uh, Pennsylvania. The bright orange disc arcing up and down into my path. I stopped abruptly and one of the boys ran recklessly to pick it up. As he stood back up, he caught sight of my face. Shit, he said, looking at me stunned for a moment. It's not even fear when one of them recklessly approaches my physical space. They're repulsed at me and all my injuries and everything. Like, oh my God, look at her. Let's get away from her. And again, as I said, they're not racialized we don't know if they're white or I just assume that they're white because she doesn't say that uh, let's see and this is the only way that I can make sense of her coming back later when she says your sister has a dorm room for you to see your mother your mother a panic attack your father well he's being ignorant and you can shoulder the burden of educating him it's not all blacks you will begin it has to be he was talking about the black people as the ones that are on the polls because yeah there's no other point where he's making comments about black people in general or black like generalizing it's it would have to be he was talking about black people um Mm, 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 mm. I thought it was words are so important. They said the dinner table they would frequently have to bring in the Oxford English dictionary. Now you want to talk about poor white people? I know a lot of poor people, they cannot afford a fancy Oxford English dictionary. They wouldn't even think to value having such a mammoth book just to come in and reference the day and to have squabbles and have this be such a regular occurrence. Like, wow, that is the value, the importance of words and definitions. Uh, chocolate. She put that in Wellesley moment. My last one I'll get in. She says, oh, yeah. At first, so she says the chocolate milkshake. Yeah, I'll read the whole thing and this will be my last one. She says, uh, so I watched Kojak as I laid my Lang's nightgown and drank chocolate milkshakes. At first, I had difficulty with solid food. Initially, my mouth was sore from the sodomy. And after this, having food in my mouth reminded me too much of the rapist's penis as it lay against my tongue. <sighs> this is the second time. We had the alliteration where she said uh, she hadn't had anything in her palate but the rapist's cock right cracker cock that was what she said the alliteration and then it come back again like I mean I guess you could say that that's all a sense of humor of some sort but I mean really if you're that uncomfortable just seeing black males and all that they didn't come in and be all risque and tongue in cheek about having a penis a black male's penis in your mouth eh, I don't know I don't know uh, yeah I'll stop there I had other highlights but I'll uh, pause it there the whole crotch father scene Catholic Church nobody has done more raping collectively than the Catholic Church I think they got that title undisputed maybe the Boy Scouts can give them a run for their money we have to get all the baggage from the Gisseline, uh, Mas- Gisseline Maxwell trial Jerry Repstein see how big their crew was uh, we'll get to audio segment two. Folks have additional comments they didn't get to share. Just make a note and we should have time to share. Hopefully the audio will be perfect this time so I won't have to read. Alice Siebold. Lucky.
wrongful conviction of Anthony Broadwater. Audio segment two. Myra came last. I wish I remembered her visit, or, I should say, I wish I could remember it in the detail of what she wore or how we sat or what she said. But what I remember is suddenly being in the presence of someone who got it, not just knew the facts, but, as near as she could, understood what I felt. She sat in the winged chair. Her presence was comfort and succor to me. Ed had not fully recovered from the beating. He never would. He had taken too many blows to the head. He was addled now, confused a lot. Myra was like me. People expected her to be strong. Her outward traits and reputation led them to believe that if it had to happen to any of the old ladies at church, it had happened to the most resilient one. She told me about the three men. She laughed as she repeated how they hadn't known how feisty a woman her age could be. She was going to testify. They had arrested Joey based on her description. Still, her eyes clouded over when she talked about Ed. My mother watched Myra to find evidence that I would recover. I watched Myra for proof that she understood. At one point, she said, What happened to me is nothing like what happened to you. You're young and beautiful. No one's interested in me that way. I was raped, I said. The room was still, my mother suddenly uncomfortable. The living room, where the antiques had been carefully arranged and polished, where my mother's needlepoint pillows decorated most of the chairs, where gloomy portraits of Spanish noblemen stared down from the walls, was changed now. I felt I had to say it, but I felt also that saying it was akin to an act of vandalism, as if I had thrown a bucket of blood out across the living room at the blue couch, Myra, the wing chair, my mother. The three of us sat there and watched it drip. I know, Myra said. I needed to say the word, I said. It's a hard one. It's not the thing that happened to me, or the assault, or the beating, or that. I think it's important to call it what it is. It's rape, she said, and it didn't happen to me. We returned to forgettable conversation. A while later, she left, but I had made contact with a planet different from the one my parents or sister lived on. It was a planet where an act of violence changed your life. That same afternoon, a boy from our church, the older brother of a friend of mine, stopped by the house. I was on the porch in my nightgown. My sister was up in her room. Girls, Jonathan's here to visit, my mother called from the front hall. Perhaps it was his sandy blonde hair or the fact that he had already graduated from college and had landed a job in Scotland or that his mother thought so highly of him, and as a result, we knew almost every item of his golden boy resume. Whatever the case, my sister and I had an unspoken and mutual crush. We entered the hall at the same time, I from the back of the house, my sister descending the spiral staircase in the front hall. His eyes were on her as she stepped down. My sister did not flounce. I could not accuse her of being coy or flirtatious or otherwise unfairly competitive. She was pretty. He was smiling up at her, and the initial niceties of, How are you? Fine. How are you? had begun. Then he noticed me, standing in the doorway of the living room. 
It was as if his eye landed on a thing that didn't belong. We talked for a minute or two. My sister and Jonathan moved into the living room, and I excused myself. I returned to the back of the house, shut the door to the family room, moved on to the porch, and sat with my back facing the house. I cried. The words, nice boys, entered my mind. I'd seen how Jonathan looked at me and was now convinced no nice boy will ever want me. I was all those horrible words used for rape. I was changed, bloodied, damaged goods, ruined. When Jonathan left, my sister was giddy. I moved to the doorway to the family room. They hadn't seen me, but through the window leading onto the porch, I'd heard my sister's gleeful voice. I think he likes you, my mother said. Really? asked my sister, the pitch of her voice rising on the second syllable. It sure looked like it to me, my mother replied. He likes Mary, I said, making my presence known, because Mary wasn't raped. Alice, my mother said, don't do this. He's a nice boy, I said. No nice boy is ever going to want me. My sister was dumbfounded. Talk about sinking her ship. She had been buoyant, which she deserved. In the week following her homecoming, she had spent most of her time in her room, out of the fray and away from the limelight. Alice, said my mother, that's not true. Yes, it is. You should have seen the way he looked at me. He couldn't deal. My voice was raised. As a result, my father stirred from his academic lockdown in the study. What's all the commotion, he asked, entering the family room. He held his reading glasses in his right hand and looked, as he frequently did, as if he had been rudely awakened from life in 18th century Spain. Thanks for joining us, bud, my mother said. Stay out of this. No nice boy is ever going to want me, I said again. My father, without any context, was horrified. Alice, why would you say a thing like that? Because it's true, I yelled. Because I was raped and now no one will want me. That's preposterous, he said. You're a beautiful girl. Of course nice boys will ask you out. Bullshit. Nice boys don't ask rape victims out. I was really blaring it now. My sister retreated from the room and I yelled up after her. Fine. Go write it in your journal. A nice boy came to see me today. I'll never write that. Leave your sister out of this, my mother said. What makes her so special? She gets to stay up in her room while you put me on suicide watch. Dad is walking around like I'm going to fall apart if he touches me, and you're hiding in the laundry room to have your flaps. Now, Alice, my father said, you're just upset. My mother began rubbing her chest. Your mother and I are doing the best we can, my father said. We just don't know what to do. You could say the word, for starters, I said. Stilled now, my face hot with screaming, but tears making their way up again. What word? Rape, Dad, I said. Rape. The reason why people are staring at me. The reason why you don't know what to do. Why those old ladies are coming over and Mama's flipped out. Why Jonathan Gulick stared at me like a freak, okay? Calm down, Alice, my father was saying. You're upsetting your mother. It was true. My mother had edged over to the far end of the couch, away from us. She was bent over with one hand on her head and one rubbing the center of her chest. I openly resented her then, 
resented how attention always focused on the weakest one. The doorbell rang. It was Tom McAllister. A year older than I, he was the most handsome boy I knew. My mother thought he looked like the actor Tom Selleck. I had not seen Tom since the midnight service at Christmas Eve. He had been singing a hymn. At the close of the hymn, when I turned around in my pew, he smiled at me. While my father answered the door to welcome him, I slipped down the back hall to wash my face in the downstairs bathroom. I splashed cold water on my face and tried to finger-comb my hair. I arranged my robe so it covered the necklace of bruises from the rapist's hands. I cried so much each day, my eyes were permanently swollen. I wished I looked better, pretty, like my sister. My mother and father had invited Tom out onto the porch. When I joined them, he stood up from the couch he'd been sitting on. These are for you, he said, and handed me a bouquet of flowers. I got you a present, too. My mom helped me pick it out. He was staring at me, but under his scrutiny, I felt different than I had with Jonathan Gulick. My mother brought us sodas, and then, after a brief exchange with Tom about his classes at Temple, she took the flowers inside to put them in water, and my father left the porch and went to read in the living room. We sat down on the couch. I busied myself with opening the gift. It was a mug with a cartoon of a cat holding a bunch of balloons, the kind of gift that, in another mood, I would have disdained. It seemed beautiful to me, and my thanks to Tom were sincere. This was my nice boy. You look better than I thought, he said. Thank you. Reverend Bruniger made it sound like you were pretty badly beaten. I realized that, unlike the old ladies, he saw nothing hidden in those words. You know, don't you, I said. His face was blank. Know what? What really happened to me? They said in church you were robbed in a park. I watched him intently. I was unflinching. I was raped, Tom, I said. He was stunned. You can leave if you want, I said. I stared down at the mug in my hands. I didn't know. Nobody told me, he said. I'm so sorry. While he said this and meant it, he also pulled away from me. His posture grew more erect. Without actually getting up to move away, he seemed to invite in as much air as could fit in the space between us. You know now, I said. Does it change how you feel about me? He couldn't win. What could he say? Of course it must have affected him. I'm sure it did. But I didn't want the answer I know now. I wanted what he said. No, of course not. It's just, wow, I don't know what to say. What I took away from that afternoon, besides his assurance that he would call me soon and we would see each other again, was that one word to my question, no. Of course, I didn't really believe him. I was smart enough to know he was saying what any nice boy would. I was raised to be a good girl. I knew what to say at the right moment, too. But because he was a boy my age, he became heroic in proportion to any other visitor. No old lady, not even Myra, could give me what Tom had given me, and my mother knew it. She talked Tom up all that week. 
and my father, who gleefully derided a boy who had dared to ask once what country they spoke Latin in, played along. I did too, even though we all knew we were clinging to the wreckage. It was useless to pretend I hadn't changed. There was another visit, this time a few days later, and, no doubt, much harder for Tom. Again we sat on the porch. This time I listened, and he spoke. He had gone home, he said, from being with me, and told his mother. She hadn't seemed surprised, had even guessed as much from the way Father Bruniger spoke. That evening, or the next day, I forget the timeline here, Tom's mother had called Tom and his younger sister, Sandra, into the kitchen and told them she had something to say. Tom said she stood at the sink with her back to them. While she looked out the window, she told them the story of how she had been raped. She was 18 when it happened. She had never told anyone about it until that day. It happened at a train station, on her way to visit her brother, who was away at school. What I remember best is how Tom said that when the two men grabbed her, she had slipped out of her new coat and kept on running. They got her anyway. I was thinking, as tears rolled down Tom's face, of how my rapist had grabbed my long hair. I don't know what to do or say, Tom said. You can't do anything, I said to him. I wish I could go back and erase my last line to Tom. I wish I could say, you're already doing it, Tom. You're listening. I wondered how his mother had gone on to have a husband and a family and never tell anyone. After those visits in the early summer, Tom and I saw each other at church. By that time, I was no longer fixated on gaining Tom's attention or being seen with a handsome boy. I was scrutinizing his mother. She knew I knew about her, and she certainly knew about me, but we never spoke. A distance grew between me and Tom. It would have anyway, but the story of my rape had stormed into their lives uninvited. It had catalyzed a revelation inside their home. How that revelation eventually affected them, I do not know. But via her son, Mrs. McAllister gave me two things. My first awareness of another rape victim who lived in my world, and by telling her sons, the proof that there was power to be had in sharing my story. The urge to tell was immediate. It sprang out of a response so ingrained in me that even if I had tried to hold it back, thought better of it, I doubt I could have done so. My family had secrets, and from an early age I had crowned myself the one who would reveal them. I hated the hush-hush of hiding things from other people the constant instruction to keep it down or the neighbors will hear you. My usual response to this was, so what? Recently, my mother and I had a discussion about saving face at her nearby radio shack. I'm convinced the clerk thinks I'm a lunatic, my mother said, on the subject of returning a portable phone. People return things all the time, Mom, I said. I've already returned it once. So, the clerk may think you're a pain in the ass, but I doubt he'll think you're insane. I just can't go in there again. I can hear them now. Oh, there's that old lady who couldn't figure out a fork if it came with instructions. Mom, I said, they exchange things all the time. It's funny now, but growing up, the worry over the opinions of others meant keeping secrets, 
My grandmother, my mother's mother, had had a brother who died drunk. His body was discovered three weeks later by his younger brother. My sister and I were warned never to tell Grandma that Mom was an alcoholic. We also weren't supposed to talk about her flaps, and she did her best to hide them on our visits to Bethesda, where her parents lived. Although my parents cursed a blue streak, we were not supposed to curse. And even though we heard what they thought of the deacon at St. Peter's, a supercilious moron, what they thought of the neighbors, he's courting a heart attack with all that fat, what they thought of one sister when the other sister was up in her room, we were not meant to repeat it. I seemed constitutionally unable to follow these instructions. When we moved to Pennsylvania from Rockville, Maryland, when I was five, my sister had to repeat the third grade. This was because she was too young, according to the East Whiteland School District, to be in fourth grade. So on this basis alone, she had to stay in third grade for another year. This was traumatic for her because flunking a grade was one of the worst brands you could bear at age eight in a new town. My mother said no one had to know. She failed to say that for this to happen, they would have to wire my mouth shut and keep me from leaving the house. A few days after settling into the new house, I was in the backyard with our basset hound, Fei Ho. I met a neighbor, Mrs. Cochran, who bent down and introduced herself. She had a child my age, a boy, Brian, and no doubt wanted to get the scoop on our family. I obliged her. My mother's the one with the pits in her face, I said to our shocked neighbor. I was referring to my mother's acne scars. In response to the question, are there any more like you at home? I said, no, but there's my sister. She just flunked third grade. And so it went. My mouth only got bigger as time wore on, but I won't take all the blame. I was acutely aware of my audience. The adults loved it. Simply, the rules of revelation were too complicated for me to understand. My parents could say anything they wanted, but once outside our house, I was supposed to keep mum. The neighbors like to pump you for information, my mother would say. You have to learn to be more reticent. I don't know why you insist on talking to everyone. I didn't know what reticent meant. I was only following their example. If they wanted a quiet kid, I eventually told them, during some screaming match in high school, maybe I should have taken up smoking. That way, I would have lung cancer instead of what my mother accused me of having, which was cancer of the mouth. Sergeant Lorenz was the first person to hear my story, but he often interrupted with the words, that's inconsequential. He probed my story for facts that would dovetail into the more salient charges. He was what he was a just-the-facts-ma'am cop. Who could I tell these things to? I was at home. I didn't feel my sister could handle it, and Mary Alice was miles away, working a job at the Jersey Shore. It was not something I felt I could do over the phone lines. I tried to tell my mother. I was privy to many things, little asides from my mother, such as, your father doesn't know the meaning of affection, when I was 11, or the discussions we had had during my grandfather's protracted illness and death. No events were hidden from me. That was a decision I think my mother made early, in direct response to her own mother. My grandmother is stoic and taciturn. In a crisis, her words of wisdom are old school. 
If you don't think about it, it will go away. My mother, given her own life, knew this not to be true. So there was a precedent for our discussion. By the time I was 18, she had sat me down and detailed her alcoholism, its onset and aftermath. She believed that by sharing such things, I might be able to avoid them or, if need be, recognize them when they occurred. By talking about them to her children, she was also acknowledging that they were real and that they had an effect on us too, that things like this shaped a family, not just the person they happened to. My memory says it may have been nighttime. I can't be certain, but it was a few weeks after the rape and it was at the kitchen table. If my mother and I were not alone in the house, then certainly my father was in his study and my sister in her room, so we could have heard approaching footsteps if there were any. I need to tell you what happened in the tunnel, I said. Placemats were still on the table from dinner. My mother fidgeted with the corner of hers. You can try, she said, but I can't promise I can do this. I began. I told her about Ken Child's house, about taking pictures in his apartment. I got onto the path in the park. I told her about the rapist's hands, how he grabbed me with both arms, about the fighting on the bricks. When I got into the tunnel, started taking off my clothes, when he touched me, she had to stop. I can't, Alice, she said. I want to, but I can't. It helps me to try and talk about it, Mom, I said. I understand that, but I don't think I'm the one to do it with. I don't have anyone else, I said. I can make you an appointment with Dr. Graham. Dr. Graham was my mother's psychiatrist. In reality, she was the family psychiatrist. She had begun as my sister's psychiatrist and then wanted to see us as a family so she could see how the family dynamic affected my sister. My mother had even sent me to Dr. Graham a few times after a particularly bad spill down the spiral staircase. I was always running up or down it in sock feet and often would slip on the polished wood. Each time I did a sort of bouncing pratfall until I reached the landing or my limbs tangled into a configuration that stopped my body just short of the flagstone floor in the front hall. My mother decided this clumsiness might be a part of a desire to self-destruct. I was certain it was nothing so sophisticated. I was a klutz. Now I had a real reason to see a psychiatrist. In the past, I prided myself on being the only member of the family who hadn't had therapy. I did not count a discussion of my pratfalls as therapy and had tortured my sister while she was under Dr. Graham's care. Mary entered therapy the same year the Talking Heads came out with the perfect song for her little sister to use against her, Psycho Killer, sibling brutality with a melody. We had to scrimp to pay for her therapy. I reasoned that what my parents spent on her, they should spend on me. It wasn't my fault Mary was crazy. Turnabout is fair play, but Mary didn't tease me that summer. I told her that Mom thought I should go to Dr. Graham, and we both agreed it might be good for me. My motivation was largely aesthetic. I liked the way Dr. Graham looked. She was feminist in the flesh. She was just under six feet tall, wore large batik mumus on her dominant but not heavy frame, and she refused to shave her legs. She had laughed at my jokes in high school, and after a few sessions regarding my pratfalls, 
She had said to my mother, in my presence, that coming from the family I came from, I was incredibly well-adjusted. Nothing, she had said at the time, was wrong with me. My mother drove me down to her office in Philadelphia. It was a different office from the one she had at Children's Hospital. This was her private office. She was ready for me. I walked in and sat down on the couch. Do you want to tell me why you've come to see me, Alice? She asked. She knew already. My mother had told her on the phone when she called for the appointment. I was raped in the park near my school. Dr. Graham knew our family, knew both Mary and I were virgins. Well, she said, I guess this will make you less inhibited about sex now, huh? I couldn't believe it. I don't remember whether I said, that's a fucked up thing to say. I'm sure I just wish I had. I do know that was the end of the session, that I got up and walked out. What Dr. Graham had said came from a feminist in her thirties. Someone, I thought, who should have known better. But I was learning that no one, females included, knew what to do with a rape victim. So I told a boy. His name was Steve Carbonaro. I knew him from high school. He was smart and my parents liked him. He appreciated their rugs and books. He came from a big Italian family and wanted out. Poetry was the way he chose to escape, and in this I had more in common with him than I had with anyone else. On my parents' couch at 16, we read to each other from the New Yorker book of poetry, and he had given me my first kiss. I still have my journal entry from that night. After he left, I recorded, Mom was kind of smirking at me. I went to my sister's room. She had yet to be kissed by a boy. In my journal I wrote, Yuck, ick, ugh, make me sick. I told Mary that French kissing is gross, and I didn't know why you were supposed to like it. I told her she could talk to me anytime she wanted to, if she thought it was gross, too. In high school, I was a reluctant partner for Steve Carbonaro. I would not go all the way. When he pressured me, I explained myself like this. I did not feel adamant about saying no, but I also didn't feel adamant about saying yes. So until I felt strongly one way or another, I'd stick with no. By 17, in our senior year, Steve had moved on to a girl who would, in the parlance of high school, put out. At the senior prom, while I danced with Tom McAllister, Steve drank. When I ran into him and his girlfriend, she bitterly informed me that she was doing well, considering that that morning she had had an abortion. Later, at Gail Stewart's party, Steve showed up with another girl, Karen Ellis. He had taken his girlfriend home. But by May 1981, none of those early fumblings mattered. Two hours in a dark tunnel made my yes-or-no struggles with the morality of sleeping with high school boys like Steve seem quaint. Steve had gone to Ursinus College his freshman year. He returned, having discovered a new passion for the musical Man of La Mancha. My mother and my more hard-to-court father loved his investment in the myth of La Mancha. What better choice to engage a professor of 18th-century Spanish than a musical based on Cervantes? Give or take a century, Steve Carbonaro could not have hit his mark cleaner. He spent hours that summer on the porch with my mother and father, 
being served coffee and talking about the books he loved and what he wanted to be when he grew up. I believe their attention was as important to him as anything else, and his attention to me was a godsend to my parents. The first time he visited the house that summer, I told him I'd been raped. We may have gone out a few times, as friends, before I told him everything else. It was on the couch in the living room. My parents moved as silently as possible in the room above us. Whenever Steve came over, my father would duck into his study or join my mother in her bedroom, where, in hushed whispers, they would try and conjecture what might be going on below. I told him everything I could bear to tell. I intended to tell him all the details, but I couldn't. I edited as I went, stopping at blind corners where I felt I might fall apart. I kept the narrative linear. I did not stop to investigate how I felt about having the rapist's tongue in my mouth, about having to kiss back. He was both engaged and repulsed. Here before him was live performance, real tragedy, a drama he had access to that did not take place in books or in the poems he wrote. He called me Dulcinea. He sang the songs from Man of La Mancha out loud in his white VW bug and had me sing along. Singing these songs was vital to Steve. He cast himself as the central figure, Don Quixote de La Mancha, a man whom no one understands, a romantic who makes a crown of a barber's shaving bowl, and a lady, Dulcinea, of the whore Aldanza. I was the latter. Following a song and scene called The Abduction, where Aldanza is kidnapped and, it is implied, gang-raped, Don Quixote comes upon her after she has been discarded by her captors. With the force of his imagination and will, Don Quixote insists on seeing this raped and beaten woman as his sweet and lovely maiden, Dulcinea. Steve saved up and bought tickets for us to see Richard Kiley play the lead at the Philadelphia Academy of Music. This was my early birthday gift. We dressed up. My mother took photos. My father said I looked like a real lady. I was embarrassed by the attention, but it was a night out and with a boy, a boy who knew and had not rejected me. I fell in love with him for this. And yet, somehow, seeing it played out on stage, with Aldanza chased by a group of men, fondled and abused, her breasts grabbed like lobes of meat, I could not sustain the illusion that Steve Carbonaro found essential to our relationship. I was not a whore who, by virtue of his imagination and sense of justice, he could raise to the height of a lady. I was an 18-year-old girl who had wanted to be an archaeologist when I was four and a poet or a Broadway star when I grew up. I had changed. The world I lived in was not the world that my parents or Steve Carbonaro still occupied. In my world, I saw violence everywhere. It was not a song or a dream or a plot point. I left Man of La Mancha feeling filthy. That night, Steve was exhilarated. He had seen what he knew to be truth, the truth of a romantic 19-year-old played out on the stage. He drove his Dulcinea home, sang to her in the car, and at his urging, she sang back to him. We were there for a long time. The window steamed up from the singing. I went inside. 
Before I did, what was precious to me that summer happened one more time. A nice boy kissed me goodnight. Everything was tainted, even a kiss. Looking back now, listening to the lyrics again, it is not lost on me, as it was then, that Don Quixote dies in the end, that Aldonza survives, that it is she who sings the refrain from the impossible dream, she who is left standing to do battle. Things between us did not end gloriously. There was no bright shining star or quest. Ultimately, Don Quixote had a hard time loving chaste and pure from afar. He found someone who would go all the way with him. The summer ended. It was time to go back to school again. Don Quixote would transfer to Penn. My father wrote him a passionate letter of recommendation. And I, with the eventual support of my parents, went back to Syracuse alone. All righty. That's where we will pick up at for next week. No audio issues. I love it. We'll be on Chapter 6, uh, The Return to Syracuse. So you have to really pay attention. I'm not implying that people haven't been paying attention right now. But everybody, Gusty, pay attention for next week because... I believe when she goes back to Syracuse, this is where we get the false identification of Mr. Anthony Broadwater. Uh, he has a pseudonym in the book. I think she calls him Gregory Madison. You want to think about that with an anagram? That's the homework for the week. Gregory Madison is the pseudonym used for Anthony Broadwater in the book. Anywho, but the identification is next week and some of the folks who worked on uh, getting Mr. Ex uh, Broadwater clearing his name uh, they read the book and said that there are clues in the book that this should not have happened and in fact yeah we'll get off that then next week just have your thinking gap on for next Friday, Thursday chapter 6 Alice Seabold Lucky number to dial is 720-716-7300 the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate i'll finish up one of our emails and then get to the folks who dialed in so one of our investors uh continuing he wrote uh number five so this is all from chapter five dr graham i guess that makes you less inhibited about sex i couldn't believe it it's difficult for me to imagine a female psychiatrist making this statement making a joke out of rape I guess anything is possible in a system of racism white supremacy I guess they might point out to hey most of the white female voters did pick President Trump both times 2016 and 2020 so eh. uh, no, chapter 6 number 1 slowly the stories came out Oh, we didn't get to chapter six. Stop, stop, stop. Full stop. Didn't get that far. We'll get there for next week. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up first time around, Henry in Chicago, Dread 138, non-Clemson grad, retired firefighter, are with us. Uh, if other folks are there and you have commentary to share, do not wait until the last moment. Uh, folks with commentary, proceed. 
maybe nothing stood out from the first session or second session, excuse me. While folks are getting their thoughts together, I do want to make sure I say something. The first session of reading, Father Ronigan, uh however you pronounce his name, when they talk about his son, all of the crimes he goes and I guess stabs Mrs. Mole, uh, this white woman stabs her in the face uh, in this robbery and, and all the rest of it like, man. And then and then they, they're going to charge him uh, as an adult. Right. And then they say that uh, the father, he his father, literally, and then the father of the church, uh, he says, man, he, he, he just he says he didn't know. I had to go back and look at the whole uh, footnote for it. He says that he just didn't know. He was ignorant that his son was drinking. He what was it like a fifth of alcohol. He didn't know. He didn't know that he'd been doing acid and all these other drugs. He just, he didn't know. He didn't know that his son was truant in school. Like, man, full stop. They do arrest parents for truancy. If you're, if your child is not in school, I know legally they don't say, oh, well, you didn't know. Oh, okay. That's okay. You just weren't aware as a parent that your child was not uh, getting his behind to school. That's not the position that they take. They say you're a parent. That's your job. You're supposed to know whether or not your child is in school or not. And if they're not in school, you should be on your job to get them there, much less be uh, the head of a congregation. And you don't know that your child is not going to school. Come on, man. Like, I don't want to hear nothing uh, in terms of critique about black people and their parenting like what just all of this in terms of getting a glimpse into a white family and her alcoholic mom and all the rest of it, all the drugs and substance abuse like, geez. And then I don't want to hear and then turn around and have some critique about black people and need to pull themselves up out of their bootstraps and all the rest of it like animals. We've read five chapters and you got the keg party with the underage college students, her mom being an alcoholic. The parishioner's son has to be arrested and tried as an adult. Like this is not exemplary parenting like anywhere. And it just shows a lot of the dysfunction of white families in general. But I thought that was so important. Like, man, like, really, you don't even know. Like, I guess, you know, someone could be sneaking alcohol or what have you or drugs. Maybe he was hitting up his uh, father's alcohol stash. I don't know. But I mean, you don't even know if your child is in school or not. Anywho, um, that was from the last session. I want to make sure I got that in. Uh, let's see. From the most recent section, I guess I'll share a note or two and then double check to see if folks had any comments from the second reading from the most recent section that we read chapter five, uh, the section Let's see. All righty. Where all of this commentary about these guys coming to the house and she, I guess, is trying to have some semblance of normality, if you want to call it that, uh, in her life. Uh, and she gets upset because some guy comes and is nice to her sister and, oh, I'm tainted. I've been ruined. I'm not a pure white version anymore. I'm damaged goods. Nobody's going to want me like 
all of I mean if it's going to be a lot of that for the rest of the book like man I, I forget which caller was talking about the the white victimization but so much of this is sympathy for this white woman oh I have no one I'm all that was the last word that we read all alone oh I'm going back to Syracuse and I'm all by myself my family's not here to help me my sister's beautiful white woman beautiful and she's hanging out with these other white boys and my parents don't understand and my therapist doesn't understand she's making racist jokes at me the whole way through haven't we heard like lots of jokes this week She's joking about having a cracker and a cock in her mouth. And she comes back later joking about only having a black penis in her mouth. And then the therapist, I mean, it's just everybody's just joke, 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 joke uh, about all this. Even the, the wanting to see these boys, in my opinion, she has this big conflict with her sister. And then it balloons the whole family uh, yelling at her mom and all this. I have not been raped. I'm not a female. It is challenging for me to imagine wanting to have like male attention. If I was a female and had just been through this rape, now maybe it'd be different if I was raped by a black person and it's attention from a white male, maybe. But I mean, I don't, I just don't feel like I would be in a, let me go get cute and pretty and make an impression. Like, man, I don't want to be bothered. <laughs> like, I don't want to talk unless this is like, been there through thick and thin friend who is just going to be there and console me and support me and that sort of thing like I just cannot imagine like wanting to even pretend that I'm trying to get gussied up or interested and you come in and do it especially then we're going to have to sit and talk about rape like oh no that I'm not even I'm not interested in any of that I'm chilling um let's see the Mm -mm -mm. all the fussing at the family about this they're trying to figure out how to deal with all this she thinks it's so important to call this rape again words being very important hey I'm of the ilk that calling things by their accurate name is important uh, as opposed to denying and calling it something else however we do have a lot of people who question if there was actually a rape here in the first place so um yeah, like she says, uh, another, I guess, young white fella comes to visit a handsome boy. I checked that one too. Nice boy. That's in the book 13 times. Good girl is nine times. Nice boy is in the book 13 times. Generally all or exclusively referencing white people. She says, uh, my father answered the door to welcome Tom McAllister. I slipped down the back hall to wash my face in the downstairs bathroom. I splashed cold water on my face and tried to finger comb my hair. I arranged my robe so it covered the necklace of bruises from the rapist's hands. I cried so much each day. My eyes were permanently swollen. I wished I looked better, pretty like my sister. It just, it would be hard. Even when I'm sick, right? I'm not even talking rape. Just when I'm sick, I got the flu or whatever. I'm not get pretty cute what are you talking about like I'm gonna have on whatever is comfortable so I could just hide under the covers that's that seems like more where I would be not you know let me go finger comb my hair and get some face cream so it doesn't look like my eyes are all puffy from crying and all the rest of it so I can make some sort of oppression on this young fella I guess they're younger college age but that still doesn't you know uh, let's see Mm -mm -mm. they go over the whole rape then he goes and tells his mom presumably his mom was not raped by a black guy so it seems like there's lots of white raping going on which again is not being 
explicitly called out. It's only the black people where their race is black males where it's specified, called out, and then the whole group has to suffer because of this. Let's see. Any other folks commentary that they want to make sure they get in looking through my notes from chapter five? Uh, yes. Uh, I, uh, it's not really that significant, I don't think, but as I can, uh, recollect, uh, in the uh, readings, uh, she mentions about, uh, uh, based on her being raped that, uh, no guy would, uh, be interested in her. And I, uh, juxtapose that with some, uh, what I what I recall reading about two well-known black females who were raped, uh, Florence Ballard of the Supremes, one of the original Supremes, and uh, the gorgeous Pam Greer, uh, and they those two black female individuals certainly did not have <laughs> any uh, problem of uh, getting attraction from uh males and i don't think it was just because of their uh stardom status that they rose to they were quite 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 attractive uh, females i was i would say that this particular white female even with white people more than likely herself the way she thought of herself is not very attractive in, in itself, and that's the core of the uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, but just just a thought on that. That's it. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. There's so much of that in the text. Her talking about herself as unattractive and undesirable before the rape, even. Uh, so yeah, she she did not have all of that pizzazz and thinking. Oh man, like Pam Greer, everybody has been you know for 50 years talking about how I'm just gorgeous and amazing and beautiful and so attractive. Like she total opposite foundation that she's had for the duration of the book. Uh, in terms of how she sees and thinks about herself and the rape just exacerbated all of that. Um, any any other folks commentary they want to get in second portion of the reading? Anything else they want to make sure they share? Also, I can see how a psychiatrist can make a pretty good living just with that family alone, especially her. Well, I think she said before the, the crude remark from Dr. Graham, that was the family therapist. They got to see the mom and then she's got her alcohol issues and then had to see the whole family. And then this, I mean, yeah, yeah you get uh, quite a bit of mileage uh, with everything that's going on. And then the mom said she's got gripes because the dad is not affectionate. So, yeah, it's a whole lot of things we could address here and make a lot of money. Uh, let's see. Any any other folks comments they want to get in? White insecurities can be profitable. Everybody satisfied? Soon folks are 
straight for this week around again be oh this, the dad said without context uh we came in to make sure i get the full sentence context being so important um oh and she's saying no nice boy there it is again is ever gonna want me my father without any context was horrified alice why would you say something like that um yeah let's see did i get anything else she calls the therapist the feminist not sure yeah, it might be this book might be um, another vehicle to advance a lot of the feminist notions. Seems like a lot of the feminist notion very much tied to the notion of the black rapist, black beast, black males as patriarchs and dominators and all the rest of it. Very much tied up with the notions of feminine uh, feminism, sexism uh, within the system of white supremacy. Uh, yeah, I'll pause there. Uh, next week like I said we should be getting to the identification Gregory Madison if folks want to play around with any anagrams what they can find in the word uh, in the name Gregory Madison that is the name for Anthony Broadwater in this text much obliged for folks tuning in I hope it was worthy of your time and energy we'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism uh, and then we'll be here on the 25th no holidays for attempted counter racists for the compensatory call in normal time all programs tomorrow 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific Saturday 9 p.m. Eastern 6 p.m. Pacific sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy lots of examples of drinking in the book mom an alcoholic just said underage drinking and all sorts nothing constructive connected to any of that in addition to being sober if you're going to be out and about this is not a time for confrontations with strangers you should be thinking that this person could be armed could have an entire armed entourage ready to kill if you did not leave your residence prepared to kill and or die exit if you're in a vehicle you're sober buckled up and not on a cell phone uh, we need all of our attention to try to stay as safe as we can and then we're trying to do the small things that we can control to minimize contact with race soldiers Kim Potter and the likes all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim. Man, I'm a victim up. of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>